we were thinking about what to toast to today, and then manna from heaven. Yeah, we're fucking idiots. We're idiots. Right. Uh, as of the time of recording this, and frankly, making recording this difficult. Yes. It's the fact that Destiny 2 came out today. Yeah. So, uh, to the release of Destiny 2 and the end of our podcast we, careers, we're going to pick this up on the mic. Right. Uh, PlayStation Network. On hit the PlayStation me up. Network. Zord, uh, you, you, know, you can suggest a topic and, you know, we'll riff on it in between, you know, raids and decrypting our Shooting the hive. Um, so, yeah, to Destiny 2 and the Mix 6 podcast. It was clan. A, lot, a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. The Mix 6 podcast clan. Find us. Join us. everybody i'm caleb i'm spencer and this is the mix six podcast where we have six beers review them very briefly and then have six conversations almost entirely unrelated to beer uh, so if you're here in episode whatever it is you're probably in on the bit if not if this one doesn't grab you we did 22 others maybe it's in there just give it a shake um, mm-hmm. and like we like to start every episode saying hey thanks to the patrons that allow this podcast to happen we really appreciate it um, it was very helpful. We bought us some beer. Uh, some of your money probably went into just buying Destiny 2 and thereby killing the podcast. Yep. So, you know, we came full <laughs> right. circle. You were the Alpha uh, and the Omega uh, yeah. on this people. Uh, very true. Uh, but we need a rating system. So what's our rating system? Okay, so well, as you know, if you've listened for any amount of time, uh, we rate our beers on a 1 to 5 scale. And if you're listening for the first time, we rate our beers on a 1 to 5 scale. <laughs> if something gets a 1, it's an awful beer. Uh, it has changed your life for the worst. <clears throat> and this week, we'll be rating ourselves on TV plot twists. Mm. So a one this week, a beer and... Well, we should say, uh, we're not going to do any spoilers. No spoilers. Above three. Right. We're going to spoil one and two, right. but that's for your own good. That's right. We're saving uh, you the time. Also, I came up with the idea. And okay. producer Ross came up with the idea. Uh, also, we are defining plot twist as it, it's doing a feint to someone. It's right. going left and then it goes right. It's right. got a juke. So yeah. like uh, Red Wedding... Not really a faint right. so much as like a nasty occurrence of events. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Terribly unfortunate. Yeah. Okay. A lemony snicket esque moment. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> so anyways, uh one is the worst thing you've ever had. A five has changed your life for the better. It has changed the way that you think about beer. And as Caleb said, on both one and two, we will talk a little bit about the plot twist because much like the show, we don't want you to drink that beer. Okay, so a one for us, the worst plot twist that we could collaboratively come up with at this table is lost. Um, never ever been more disappointed in a series finale in, in, in anything ever maybe don't do it you're talking about the last season plot twist right yeah the, the plot twist yeah, yeah, the, yeah the one in which we revealed the one they promised that they were never going to do and then ended up doing because no. they hadn't actually because there are numerous it. plot twists on yeah, yeah I'm talking about the one where they are in which are all you know, made stupid by the fact that they're all dead right this this has become the Ur <laughs> plot twist right in that all of the other plot twists hinge on the stupidity of this plot twist in some ways and I'm ruining this for you for you they're all dead it's, it's some sort of purgatory don't watch it. Yeah. Much like this beer, it is only a staging ground between having consumed it and having thrown it up. Okay? <laughs> Stay away from it. All right? A two. So something that's still bad, you don't want to drink it, or in this case, watch it, but it's a little bit better than what you just tried, that's St. Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not too old, I don't understand this one as much, and because I never watched St. Elsewhere, it has no resonance St. Elsewhere is a pretty run-of-the-mill medical drama. Right, I know that much. Um, and that's the thing. You can get through the two... 
Except that there's one part about it that's just distinctively awesome. And and the thing is, St. Elsewhere got canceled midway through a season. So what they did was they wrote a final episode in which there was an autistic child that is woken up by his parents. And that was the show. So there's a random autistic child that just dreamed up a hokey-ass medical drama, and you just watched it. Uh, St. Elsewhere is significant because the twist was so bad, I've never been in a creative writing workshop that didn't mention it by name. Oh, wow. And and it's the only rememberable part of the show. It's that why you don't have entire twists be dream sequences. It's literally called the Saint Elsewhere. Role. Sure. Well, uh, yeah. it's also notable because uh, Saint Elsewhere had crossovers with other TV shows, uh-huh. and then other crossovers, and those shows had crossovers with other shows. <laughs> so, so all of television is the dream of a single. Yeah. There's child. there's actually a website. There's a community of people that track this to figure out how every single TV show. That has ever been made <laughs> is connected to Saint Elsewhere and imagined by this child. Well, that's beautiful. It, Thank you, Internet yeah. and people on Internet. <laughs> now we get into the beers that are like okay to oh my god, this changed things in the right way that for me. We won't mention the plot twist. We for. will not. We will just tell can you, you mention the season. Yeah, you might. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to mention a season number. Uh, yeah, I can. I because can, don't watch Agents of Shield past because, season. Three? Three? Yeah. I, yeah. I say this so people know because shows often have multiple plot twists. So. Yeah, no, yeah. that's true. So a number three, this is your standard run-of-the-mill beer. It is the plot twist that you didn't see coming, but now that it's happened, you're like, yeah, that was a standard plot twist. It's on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and it regards Grant Ward, the most run-of-the-mill name that we can think <laughs> of. In season two or White three... White McWhitey Whiters. Right, exactly. The third. Of the whites. In season two or three, I don't totally remember, you learned something about Grant Ward that kind of changes the nature of Grant Ward's character. I think Ward's it's season character. one. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah. It's been a while since I watched it, honestly. I but didn't. it's the only memorable thing about the show as it grows increasingly bad. Absolutely true. A four. Now we're getting into plot twists and beers that you're really, really liking. Into, yeah. Maybe even in love with, depending on the plot twist and or the beer. A four for us is from Doctor Who. And it regards River Song's lineage. Okay, mm-hmm. it is still to this Matt day. Matt Smith. So yeah. we'll give you that in seasons. So. Yeah, it is. It is Matt Smith, Doctor Who, River Song's lineage. It is one of the few things that I have screamed at my television for. And you know what? Speaking of screaming, we're going to get screamed at because we said Doctor Who, right? And nerds exist on the internet. No, I'm looking forward. And to just it. to be clear, if you at me, I'm not reading it. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, no, at me on this one. All right. I want to talk about it. All right. I too have some thoughts. Egon Zord's taking this one. Right. I'm going to tag him in and get <laughs> out of the ring. Honestly, if this just ensures that for a couple of weeks it's Doctor Who and not s'more stuff <laughs> clogging my Twitter and or Facebook, you're just feed. antagonizing. You're just baiting the right. Then, baiting the listeners. Then this is a win for me. And then number five, Firefly deserved to be canceled. Right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, have you been to Steak and Shake recently? I'm not doing this right now. <laughs> they, Absolutely look, not. Look what flavor of st- uh, a milkshake they have. Mother, mother they have fucker. a s'mores one. An, a five. I'm just moving on. I'm t- <laughs> tweeting this as I do many of the mentions on Twitter. Just scrolling along. A five for us. This is a beer that has changed your life for the best. Oh my God, you're in love with it. As we are this show and have talked about lovingly on this podcast, a five for us is the twist that you learn during season two about Aqualad. And to be clear, uh, that's in Young Justice. And there are a billion twists in both seasons, right. and you should watch every single episode, just yeah. like you want to drink every beer of this available. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our list for today. Once again, a one is Lost, a two is St. Elsewhere, a three is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a four is Doctor Who, and a five is Young Justice. And on that note, we're going to grab some beers, and we'll be right back with Dissecting Our Fun. Caleb, 
what are you drinking? I am drinking uh, Narragansett's Lovecraft the Temple. Uh, is this the third of our second? Uh, second of the Lovecraftian themed beers. Yeah. These are from George and Jen. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, yes, very yeah. much. Thank you. Uh, I'm trying. It is a stick alt beer. Let's do that. Let's do that. Um, anyway, 7% by volume. It's got a nice can. Like Very it, nice can. Like uh, a, I like it better the, uh, than the Shogoth themed yeah. can. I actually <laughs> think a lot of the a lot of the beer that you brought back from Gen Con has had like really great artwork. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been very impressed with the all the Sun of King in particular. Those cans yeah. are amazing looking. That is a solid Agents of Shield. I huh. like it. I'm glad I'm drinking it. I don't want four of them, just like I don't want a fourth season of Agents of Shield. <laughs> right. uh, but, or four um, Grant Wards. Or four, that. Just known as Mad Men. Yeah, I, right. I think they're just going to get into time travel pretty soon on Agents of Shield. They're they're at that point in the death spiral <laughs> right. of a sci-fi show where you go for the temporal loopiness. Nothing and it matters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, what are we talking about? Okay, so as you know, if you've listened before, our first segment is all dissecting our fun where we talk about either a board game that we've played recently and we really love or don't really love and want to review we maybe talk about a board game mechanic or in this instance as in others we're going to talk instead about kind of a more conceptual approach to board games um brownie suggests thanks so much for your submission glut of cthulhu based board card electronic games or just what happens when any genre is overdone in a short period of time and it is an interesting question in fact uh, a couple of weeks ago I think that we post a similar question about science games, right? Yeah, and We yeah. kind of talked about... The, Where are all these coming from? Right, right. And, and for what purpose, right? Is it just kind of the nature of the trend right now that science games are science yeah. games and that's the thing people want to do? But it wasn't negative. We were like, hey, there's lots of science games. I'm glad because we like playing that's most, what, that's not all of great. them so far. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, but this is sort of the flip side of that coin. Like, oh, there's a lot of these now. Right. But maybe they're not all good. Well, so. yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the... So So I think this has actually happened in two ways. I think that there are two parts to this uh, in, in terms of board games. Board games get stuck in the rut of trend in, in two different ways. The first is taking a similar mechanic or even an existing franchise and throwing a skin on it, right? Mm-hmm. So here I'm thinking about like Munchkin, what Munchkin does or what Love Letter did at a certain point, right? Risk, Monopoly, Clue, take an established game franchise and then throw whatever the flavor of the day is on top of it. So yeah. here's, here's a Game of Thrones Munchkin. Or I don't yes, there can't, this can be a crass marketing ploy. Yeah, absolutely, right? Take mechanic, slap trendy thing. I think Munchkin just put out a Rick and Morty Munchkin. Sure, Because, you know, that's what we needed, more Munchkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not really super interested in talking about that version of this, though. The yeah. thing that I'm more interested in talking about is uh, th- that trend which takes at its core the thing. So Cthulhu or Zombies for Red Market. I don't know what you're talking about. No, yeah. So <laughs> Never been done before. It's a book that I've seen, uh, frankly, mm, medium. Uh, uh, Cthulhu. It's actually quite big. It's large. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, zombies. Uh, you know, the, the list goes on. Takes the core of the thing and it says, now let's make a game based on that environment, that mm-hmm, setting, mm-hmm. whatever the core mechanic or the core philosophy is of yeah. that thing. I'm much more interested in that version of this conversation. Yes. So from your perspective, and as someone who has literally just dug himself out of the grave of writing an RPG, which is a really good and yeah, metaphor because like the it. RPG is yeah. about fucking zombies, it people. Is. No, it's not about fucking zombies. Uh, that's a different. Then I played Red hey. Markets. I played Red Markets totally wrong. Okay, <laughs> right. I gotta be honest with you. All right, still feels like I won though. Um, from your perspective, uh, what, where is there a lie, like a clear principled line in your head between okay, we've done too much of the thing, and okay, there's still room to explore in this genre. Y- yeah, I think the 
we talked about not mentioning the crass marketing sort of ploy thing, yep. but I think that flips both ways. Yeah, the company can do it because they want to do a cash in, right? Uh, but we're not really talking about that. But but I think you can change the narrative, the sort of way a theme is read by the company by having that done too many times, wherein your theme is going to be regarded as a crass cash in. Sure, that's right. And with zombies, I think that's fair in some way. Like yeah. it's been happened before. I'm not saying that fans are wrong when they get tired of zombies because yes, uh, it has been. You know crashly cashed in um but the thing is that i feel that happens in regards to that if you at that point still consciously choose to go forward Mm. in that realm yeah you're you're kind of stuck into one of two paths all right so you're either trying to be more authentic to the theme's original goals sure so we talked in a previous episode about how i view you know the zombie is the modern myth structure yeah, yeah, yeah. it's what you use to carry totality in a horrific vein yeah um and that's definitely what i tried to do in red markets by you know making it instead of like having the subtext of dawn of the dead be you know capitalistic i tried to make it the text right. the text is a narrative about capitalism sure it both causes and precipitates this horrific event mm-hmm. uh while at the same time failing to explain itself or the event Right. Um, so that was where I wanted to be. So I think you, if you're still doing it as a result of like being part of the public, yeah. being aware of these public perceptions, you're doing it hopefully because you want it to be more true and authentic to what drew you to the theme and what probably made the theme overly popular in the first place. Yeah, I think so. I think the alternate and the wrong side to take of this is like you still want to do it because you have a deep love for it and that's authentic and that's good. Right. But then you're trying to take increasingly hot takes. On that theme. Sure. And I think that's the other way where it goes. And that can go bad in a big <laughs> really way. Really quickly. Right? And just and it can like go to a level where it in- actually increases the negative feedback loop of like zombie things are shit. Yeah. This is a zombie thing, therefore it must be shit. Sure thing. And like zombie things are shit, but your zombies are talk and they're sexy and they right. surf. Yeah. And man, zombie things are really shit. Yeah. Like and now you've you've Got, the cycle's going faster. Now. I do kind of wonder about that, though, right? So, like, especially with games, and and games probably more so than other forms of media or entertainment. Probably a good argument here that I'm wrong. That you know, movies and television shows are equally built to add elements which are not considered generic inside those constraints, right? So, I'm thinking here of like 28 days later. 28 Days Later is probably not the first text to have fast zombies, but it was certainly one of the first texts I encountered to have fast zombies, and I was like, holy fucking shit. You know, this has taken a generic constraint, the speed of the zombie, and has blown it out of the water in a really interesting way, and so now I accept that that is no longer a generic constraint on the the field. And so that's a great example. I'm sorry to go off on zombies again, but, like, it's not the first film to have fast zombies. I think that might be Return of the Night of the Living Dead, the brains one. Um, Send more paramedics. They were well. They were intelligent. They actually said brains, but uh, but they do move much quicker. Well, there than was your, an Italian horror film that yeah. had running zombies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From but, like but, the seventies. But here's yeah. the thing: while not the first take, the first one to do that well, yeah, no, I believe. Right. Like yeah. you know, they're they're sprinting, frothing. Yeah. It's a source of nightmare. It's not a matter of like, oh god, we got to do zombies. How do we do it differently? Well, like whatever ours are fast. Right. Like it's it's a the entire movie's about the speed right. at which death can come. Sure. Um, and it, it is enhanced in that. So, so I think that's the good side of things. And like the increasingly hot take side of things is our zombies can call for paramedics to eat paramedics. Yeah. Like, no, I know. We, yeah. yeah. We we can certainly run down, you know, there, there is a question about what is a, a principled or maybe even a quality addition to a, to a genre or a principled or a quality removal of a generic constraint. I don't know if there's ever really a principled reason to in some ways. Um, 
Having said that, whereas 28 Days Later is a good example, I actually think that games are probably, in terms of a medium, much more ripe for being able to bend and break generic constraints in interesting ways. Because you're participating in the narrative that you're referencing. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, you, you're probably no stranger to this. Your, your version of gaming, the, the RPG, is probably the most uh, opportune setting, right, to break a generic constraint. Yeah. But when I'm thinking kind of about the classic tabletop game, or, or any of the games that we would typically play on a Saturday afternoon, it seems to me that those those mediums are ripe with opportunities to break generic constraints. So, from your perspective, can you think of games which have really broke, have taken a genre and pushed it forward in an interesting way? With uh, science is the the easy one to talk about, I guess, because we've talked about it so much in the past. That is, has broken a generic constraint or has violated some expectation around a genre, and you've gone, "Holy shit, that was great!" And it's moved the genre forward for me. I cannot. Can you? Not really. And that's what I'm trying to... So here's the thing. Maybe we're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe the glut is not a theme glut or not a narrative glut. Uh, maybe what we're getting at is a symptom of a mechanical glut. Yeah, a mechanical glut. So yeah. like maybe the reliance on Lovecraftian themes is because you know Call of Cthulhu has been around since the 80s. Um, there's a certain game mechanic that it represents this risk-reward play where you need to like reduce engagement with the problem sure. lest you go insane yeah and so if you've got this risk reward well i could do this but it's really difficult but i get a lot out of it yeah but i've got this constantly draining resources which is you know sanity something like that if you're trying to convey that theme yeah. or that theme of like i should be scared what happens to my peace right you know lovecraft's not a bad way to do it um similarly a zombie game if you have NPC pieces are uh, that are overwhelming yeah. and growing in an exponential number. Right. Horde-like. Yeah, horde-like. Uh, a zombie game sort of like is accepted that as writ. So maybe you're learning mechanics faster. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's like not a fact that there's Lovecraft, too many Lovecrafting games or too many zombies games, but there are too many mechanics yeah. that fit too easily with Lovecrafting sure. and zombie games. Is, is that perhaps an no, explanation? I, I, I like that explanation a lot. If if you look at you know some of the genre literature in in like criticism, for example, like rhetorical or literary criticism, you know one of the things that you get. Is that you know genres are powerful for a number of reasons. They're constitutive. They're they're constraining, etc. But they also provide kind of shorthand accounts of how to interact with the text. Right? If you know something no. fits into the genre of science fiction, you also have a vocabulary or a frame or vocabulary or framework in your mind. Oh, now I know how to interact with that thing. Right? When I encounter it. So from your point, then, if it really is a, a lack of mechanical innovation... Yeah, the medium is the message. Right. Then, then Potion the, Explosion is not themed as Cthulhu, because it would explicitly right. impair learning the rules. That's absolutely right, yeah. But but the, the generic imposition of science game, or science, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, well, it's science game, so I'm trying to do this, right? I understand yeah. chemistry enough to mm -hmm. figure it out. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe now that we've kind of talked around it a little bit, my my response to Brownie might be that... Yeah, there's definitely an overdoing of genre things. That's partially what makes something a genre, that it's been done enough that it has a you know constitutive framework under which we can say this thing fits into a genre. And I think it, when it, in regards to what happens, it's this feedback loop kind of thing where yeah. you have to have these increasingly hot takes or you have to be more adherent to whatever right. is overdone than the other things have done. Yeah, but I kind of like the approach that you've come up with there, which is, yeah, it's not great. Yes, it's, a, it's, it's an overdoing, as it were. The why does it happen? Right, and that, I, I actually like the idea that maybe because there's a lack of mechanical in innovation in the way we think about games, and this has kind of sent me on a path, because now I'm thinking about the games that we've ravely reviewed over the past, you know, 20-something episodes, wherever we are in this bit. Uh, 
the, the games that I feel like we review the best uh, are the ones that seem to violate what I think are like dead old mechanics or introduce something new to me, right? Like we get, we get Gaga over to Kaido because yeah. it changes the way you think about movement and turn order. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because it pushes the mechanical boundary. So now I'm wondering if like my whole explanation of liking and not liking a game at 31 is whether or not the game is just a dumb old mechanic played on the same board with a different color all the time. Yeah. Or if it's because it's, it's pushed what I conceive of as a mechanical constraint. Yeah. Well, okay, cool. Now I get to deal with that for the rest of the night <laughs> while I lay awake in bed. Thanks so much for the su- suggestion, Brownie. On that note, we're going to grab another beer and we'll be right back uh, for uh, more of this kind of life-changing... Uh, revolutionary thinking. Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is our second, second Sun King Brewery beer. Yes. I think third. Third Sun King. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that we have two a couple of episodes ago. Or second or third, yeah. It mm-hmm. is also uh, a Gen Con special. And did you... No, this is actually just one of their own. They only do oh. one special Gen Con brewery okay. here. Did this you... is just their stand. Gen Con retrieval. Yeah, yeah. Did you buy this? I did buy it also... at Gen Con. It was... Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, it's great. Anyways, it's called King's Reserve. Yeah. Uh, I've already tried it. Going to be honest, totally violated the Stillwater rule. Uh, <laughs> this is a... Uh, where the fuck did it go? A sour ale fermented with wild yeasts. College Avenue. Sour, sour ale fermented with wild yeasts. It is quite good. I'm going to be honest with you about that. Pretty remarkable considering how far it had to travel, too. Yeah. Especially in a metal can. Right. Which is not great for keeping something cool in the sun on the back of a car. This is probably a four for me, uh, which would be the river song of plot twists. <laughs> um, it is... Sometimes what sours do for me is they taste a little bit too much like a like sour apple Jolly Rancher. Mm-hmm. Like they're a little too sweet when they finish. Yeah. This one is a little too sweet when it finishes, but the, the front is really good. It's terribly light uh, and crisp. So it's a four for me. Uh, having said that, what are we talking about? We are talking about, and this was a mistake, which is your number one pick every time I put it up, so I'm not putting it up next time. Uh, we are talking about, and this was a mistake, something I think is a mistake because I just had to come up with something. So how some um, of this works. Here's my hot take on this kind of thing. I, I think dress codes for most occupations are bullshit and counterproductive. Really? Yes. Just no questions asked. I mean, it's going to be a pretty short segment if that's actually the case. No, 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 but no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so give me l- – let's start on the smaller side of this equation then. Give me some dress codes that you understand and do not think are bullshit just so I have some context here. Uh, scrubs in an ER. Okay, great. That, that would make – Perfect sense. Totally reasonable. Um, Tucking in your shirt or something when you're in a machine shop. Okay. uh, Where there's some sort of utility to the goal. Um, A colored polo shirt so that you can see who to ask for help. Okay. Like, I I, I can get all that. Uniform for the military. Uh, Yes. Yep. I can also see that. Sports teams. Yes. Okay, great. I'm fine with that. All right. So not We've yet to mention the majority of working occupations. That's what I'm trying to figure out, right? So it seems like we're naming a bunch of things here. And you're okay with all of these things. So now, give me an example of a dress code in an occupation that you just find ridiculous. Okay, so I can't wear jeans when I work at Best Buy with my color polo. Okay. You have to wear khakis. Because right. otherwise, how else would I identify you except for being in that bright blue polo that says Best Buy across of it? Okay, fair. Uh, utterly ridiculous. Um, I'm going to be honest. Dressing up for teachers, to use my personal example... Uh, I am running to and for from a copy machine. I am on my feet constantly. I have to squat down to talk to children at desks. I got to stand up to pick things off of them. 
I'm a very active, and you should be very active if you're a teacher. Uh, doing that in a suit just makes me uncomfortable. Furthermore, no one respects me as a professional anyway, or else you wouldn't have the majority of like all forms of media that depict teachers ever. Mm-hmm. Get at me like this. Find a positive recommendation that is more recent than Dead Poet Society. Damn I de- fucking defy you. I was going to say Dead Poet um, Like, uh, so I'm not respecting. I'm, I, I couldn't be more blue collar. I, I make that money. I, I, I'm running around like, yes, I went to college, but like I, I work for a living, stuff sure. like that. Like, let me wear tennis shoes. Let me get something I can run around in. Like, yeah, for sure. Because like wearing a tie, when kid, if it's a kid I need to talk to, wearing a tie is probably hurting me and not helping me and yeah, what's I mean, my purpose there i definitely think that it kind of interrupts some identification a concept we'll talk about later in this podcast um you know i while i probably don't have the vitriol that you do towards dress codes i too typically struggle with them a little bit so when i was consulting in particular um my week uh, you know I, I would go to a variety of different companies in a variety of different industries throughout the course of the week and so on monday i may be working at factories Right on Tuesday, I may be working at you know a software development company, and on Wednesday, I might be at a bank or another professional insurance provider, you know, and on Thursday, I'd be at a fucking brewery. And what was striking to me over time is not just the changes that I would have to make mentally or cognitively about what I was talking about the next day and what the issues were that we were addressing, but that over time I would have to change the way in which I dressed depending on the day and what my meetings looked like. Yeah. Because it became clear that while I had a role, which is typically defined by I think a dress code expectation, business consultant, right? We would typically think of probably probably business casual or greater in a lot of instances. Certainly mm-hmm. in the larger cities, much greater than business casual. Um, because I was interacting with people in a variety of different settings, I was often kind of taking on the dress code of the workplace. So in a factory, right, you know, in manufacturing setting, it was like jeans and maybe a button-up, but untucked with the sleeves rolled up, right? At Ooh, the bank. Rebel. Yeah, well, absolutely, right? Ooh. At the bank or any other professional services. Our listeners start fanning themselves. Yeah, you're right. You know what? You can see pictures of me on Facebook. Now, just imagine that in jeans and a button-up, mm. you know, which is probably all you'll find me in that isn't a hoodie on <laughs> yeah. Facebook. You know what I mean? Um yeah, when I was at the bank, right, it was the nicest pair of pants I could feasibly afford, a pair of shoes that I absolutely hate wearing but looked really nice, you know, and a tie and a shirt. And then at the brewery, it was like, what the fuck, just just maybe have pants on, you know, and that was kind of the nature of the beast. Um, all of that was kind of difficult for me because when I was a teacher, it was largely, with some exception, largely just jeans and a hoodie every day and what, what might count for shoes, right? Yeah. Having said that, I understand uh, that given that the dress code is an expectation in those areas, while I think they might be bullshit, I also think that they serve, I don't know, I don't want to get to the school, I'm not, I don't want to get in a school uniforms argument, but I don't, I think that there's like some social cohesion and social bonding to the whole bit. And I think that in the same ways they have some positive effects, they have some negative effects, and here we go down the school uniform rule, that they can be exclusionary, that you know they, they can be identity draining, not identity giving. I get all that stuff. But I do think there's some positive aspects of them, and I understand that they're like par for the course in some places. So I don't know that I would say that I think that they are bullshit. But I do understand. I'm not saying categorically. Right. But well, I'm clearly saying, you've identified some exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know that they have the nefarious effects. I mean, I, 22-year-old me certainly felt very different about dress codes than 31-year-old me. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And I feel like I, I'm getting too mired in my own personal experience. That's just one example of things where I think it, it's not helping us. Sure. So here's the thing. I think the dress codes in most places are not achieving what the dress code ostensibly says it's trying to achieve. Oh, okay. And the things that it's trying to achieve are being undermined by the things it is the hidden curriculum of the dress code. So, for instance, like if your dress code is based entirely on utility – 
Like, can I do this or can I not do this? Um, first off, you're you're an employer and you're asking for any any cry of sexism because chances are your dress code, anything beyond utility, has a different requirement for women than it does for men. So again, yeah. yeah so you're risking yourself a lawsuit in yeah. a business that's essentially about profit in right. terms of utility. Right. So furthermore. We talk about millennials killing things. One thing about millennials is that while we are crass consumers, we recognize we are crass consumers yeah. and we recognize very that we have been trained to do it and we're very meta about it. So when I go to Applebee's, I go to Applebee's not thinking that this is like fine dining. I'm not like, well, treat yourself to a Diet Coke, honey. Like right. I understand that I am a horrible schlub eating at Applebee's right. because it is close. However, what do you want to not do as a business owner when I'm there conceding to Applebee's? You don't want to remind me about how awful and consumers it is. You especially don't want to demean the hell out of your workers. So when you make people wear like fucking flair, right, which got yeah. made fun of in a movie in the 90s and they're still fucking doing in 2017, yeah. like what are you conveying? What is the utility of that? You've made it harder for someone to come into work. You've made it more demeaning to come into work so they're not happy as they do it. You've made them more uncomfortable so they have less utility of the job. You're just relying solely on the money. Sure. And now you've reminded anyone in the business under 35 yeah. that this is a crass, mindless, soulless corporation that is grinding someone that's probably their age to dust, yeah. paying them 235 plus tips. Right. Like when I if I don't go to Chick-fil-A, but if I still went to Chick-fil-A right. and you have this like pre-written shots where I say thank you, where someone has to say my pleasure in the creepiest, most memorable, sexy way possible, yeah. guess what you've done? You've decided I don't go to Chick-fil-A even before you started like actively supporting racists. Right. And you've also decided that if I did go, I'm not going to say thank you. Sure. Because now it's creepy and weird. So now you've taken a person that's working a little fast food job, and you've put them in a situation where I'm actively not going to say thank you Taking to them. Taking the pleasantry. Because I don't want that weird prescribed response that makes me off-put. I don't think it's achieving. Like, I think there's huge swaths of dress codes that uh, should be yeah. like, be clean, right. cut your hair. Don't have anything hanging out. Right. Be able to be identified as an employee. And anything beyond that sure. is like uh, you're not advertising what you think you're advertising. Yeah, you're I'm kind of with you on that. Like, so one of, the, one of the tricks that I always ran into, you know, kind of in line with this, especially the am I un undermining the thing I'm really trying to accomplish. Yeah. When I was teaching public speaking, right, th there was an expectation, a department-wide, nay, probably an industry-wide expectation that for public speeches, especially in introductory classes, of which most are, uh, students would have to dress up to give their speeches, business casual or better, right? And I understand that there is a time in which that practice makes sense because public speaking happened in fairly confined ways. That time doesn't exist anymore, right? And so yeah. at some point, it gets harder and harder to make an argument to a freshman in college who already doesn't want to do this thing in the and first place. And now you have place. a classist argument. Right, that, right. And now you have a classist argument. I'm here on scholarship, but now I need to go to freaking express right. by pants. Right. Like, yeah. Well, and wh why do I need to put on, you know, a shirt and a tie and expensive pants when I can watch, you know, a TED Talk, right, which is widely <laughs> regarded as the public speaking, right, yeah. of, of, of our time, when I can watch a TED Talk of somebody wearing a T-shirt and shorts and flip-flops, right? Yeah. And people, it's got millions of views, and people are telling me it's the smartest thing they've ever seen, right? And furthermore, what is my grade based on? And this is the, the ultimate thing yeah, I was for doing. Sure. Like, when you have a dress code that is not based in utility, yeah. you are inviting your own employees to pierce holes in the myth of your meritocracy. Yeah. Like, beyond utility, beyond that kind of stuff, the idea that, like, we are here to profit, we are here to be effective, we do whatever we need to do to do that. The second you start saying, but your shirt 
better be this color right. and you need to wear these kind of pants and like that kind of stuff. The second you start doing that, you've you've basically just invited like, yeah, but um, we are totally narcissistic, you know, and we are completely going to judge you based on appearances. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be around connections and networking on this that has nothing to do with your ability to do the job. Absolutely. And, like, you've just really just given them that critique of your own place. And you know what? They can't do it because they're employees and they don't have power. Right. But they can also not work for you anymore and now your turnover rate's really high and now you got to get the next person to put on a bunch of shitty flair. Right. And, now your business is harder to run. Yeah, that's right. Fuck you, Applebee's. Yeah, like, well, I mean, I was thinking about it the other night. We were at Alamo yep. watching the draft house. Yep. No one was wearing an interview. They were in dark clothes. Right. Wear dark clothes because right. it's a theater. Right. You, you want to be unobtrusive. Yeah. Crouch down. But, like, you're going to be crouching down. Wear jeans that are loose-fitting. Wear something comfortable for you to do that in. Sure. I don't give a shit as long as it's black. Utility. That's a utility-based dress code. Yeah, I'm with you Like, on that. And that's great. Keep that. I'm not saying you could get rid of all dress codes. Right. But, like... Anything beyond that yep. is actively harming what it's presumably there to create. Yeah, I'm with you on 95% And I think it, that's a mistake. Right. I, I, you know, it's also weird that we're having this conversation while we're wearing our mixed six approved attire. You know what I mean? So that's <laughs> yeah. very difficult for us. And it on is that 32 note, pages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, uh, more beer, more stuff just on the other side. What's that beer you have there? I am drinking uh, Boulevard Brewing out of Kansas City. Holla. Uh, Dark Truth. 816. An Imperial Stout. Bill bought this for the podcast. Thank you very much, Bill. We love us some Bill and Melissa. RPPR's Bill. Right. RPPR's Bill. Because he hasn't been on the Mix 6 yet. Let's take a hot second and just like say we absolutely love us some Bill and Melissa Sunwall. And of course, the newest addition to the Sunwall family, Anora. Yes. Who is stronger than any of us. Very, very true. And very adorable. And just the best. Mm -hmm. Caleb, how's that beer? That is a solid. You're gonna go four, Agents of Shield. Oh, that's a three for you. Yeah, man, I like that beer. I do like that beer a lot, and I don't. Yeah, I don't dislike. It. I gave it a three. Right, but no, I understand. It's how the not quite four. Work. And you know, it's maybe a four because like I have a lot of stouts, man. Yeah. It's, it's up against a lot of competition. It's a little smoky on the back end, mm-hmm. which I find interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think I need some more sweetness there uh, to like cut the smokiness because it just feels sort of yep. there's no difference between the initial taste and the aftertaste. It's just like a loud ringing one note. So in your world of stouts, to derail briefly, you would prefer the milk stout or the chocolate stout then to the kind of like yeah the tobaccoy smoky stout. Yes, I would, uh, especially because like with these more milk well not milk stouts necessarily, but especially with like a coffee stout or a milk stout or chocolate stout. Yeah, there's usually other other flavors in there like uh that horf de hormal dark sour yeah that was the hardest the it was just a roller coaster of flavor right. um whereas this there's not many there's if i had to make a musical metaphor it's not dynamic like oh. it, it's it's like it's fortissimo Look and then you. that's it right um Formata hold yeah mm-hmm. exactly uh so what are we talking about uh, less music stuff now, please. That yeah. Formata Hold is literally the only music thing I know. Okay? Yeah, we're done. Yeah. We're so, well, it's a good thing it's the last episode of the podcast because Destiny 2 right. came out. Yeah. So when you find us on PSN, don't ask me about music <laughs> shit, okay? Um, anyway, so Ben H. has asked us an interesting question. Uh, at least it's interesting to me uh, because he used my name, and that's generally, like the president, how I evaluate whether or not things are interesting. 
do they or do they not mention me? We have to edit the show notes to right. get like three or four mentions of Spencer d- in every line. You don't know how many mixed six episodes we've recorded where I just didn't show up because it wasn't about me, and so therefore we don't publish them. Anyways, Ben H. asks, in a previous segment, you talked about how Spencer, that's me, could sell sand to a camel, not me. Can you give those of us who are rhetorically inexperienced a 101 of language jujitsu? He also says extra points for any good starting points for follow-up reading. Wait, that second not me, was that like, I can't sell sand to a camel, or I am not a camel? I am not a camel. Okay, good. Yeah, right. I was going to well, disagree with one. Could, could be both. I've never <laughs> tried to sell sand to a camel, so we don't know. But you're confident. I feel, yeah, I feel reasonably good about the whole bit. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, anyways, I, I, yeah, I'm jazzed to talk about this. Uh, this is an ask mix six, but it also feels like a com corner. And so that I'm like, Hey, let's, yeah. let's do that fusion. Um, also just as a cursory warning, Ben H, you said extra points for any good starting points for follow-up reading. After I suggest my follow-up reading, you will take points away. Okay. So this, <laughs> you've done this to yourself, sir. Okay. So here is my five step plan to being more persuasive. And I had to think systematically about this, which is not how I've thought about being persuasive in a long time. Now it's just like, oh, I heard something. Try this. But here's my five-point systematic plan to being persuasive. And if I had to give a name to this plan, right, um, the Marshall Plan, for example, I wouldn't call it the Marshall Plan. That would not be effective. In fact, that would be ineffective in terms of persuasion because it would pull in a bunch of other references. So don't do that. The plan that I will, the, the name that I will give this plan is the Understand Your Audience Plan. All right, because that for me is at the core of being an effective persuader of of, of language jujitsu. It is understanding your audience, and I want to make it very clear that the language jujitsu metaphor is important here because none of this is about being overtly manipulative, and I would never want someone to go out and be overtly. overtly uh, manipulative, or certainly not maliciously manipulative. Uh, but I do think that there are probably reasons that one ought to learn how to be persuasive or rhetorically skilled when it benefits someone for the right reasons. And I know that's a moving, a moving benchmark. It's what about I'm, redirecting energies rather yeah. than applying new energies? Yeah, maybe? I guess I'm just what I'm trying to do here is virtue signal. I guess a little bit. Like, don't use this bad. Use this goodly. Okay. Oh, yeah. people. Yeah. All right. So. All right, having said that, five things I think you have to do really, really well. And the first thing is actually not about being all that rhetorically skilled or being persuasive. The first thing that you have to do to be, to be effective as a persuader, I think, is just listen. I think one of the biggest mistakes most people make is that they assume, okay, it's my job to sell something here, or it's my job to sell myself, or to, to make a, a persuasive argument. And so what they forget to do is just listen. And you want to listen for a couple of reasons. One, it allows the other person to do some talking. And when people feel like they're getting to share what is important to them, they already feel better. It's lighting up the right parts of the brain. It's allowing them to feel like they, they're, they matter, like they're participating. And that's really, really powerful for people. What it also allows you to do is it allows you to identify major issues that you'll want to use as part of your persuasive appeal. And in particular, I always listen for two things when I'm trying to move the ball forward in terms of making an argument or making a successful appeal. I'm listening for frequency and I'm listening for intensity. So if something comes up a lot amidst all of the clutter, one thing has come through seven times, that's the thing that we have to resolve, right? They may have said 50 things and 43 of them were different and seven weren't then it's the seven, right? It's that thing that I want to focus on right there. So I listen for frequency, and then I also listen for intensity. They may have said 50 different things, but one of those things got they someone... They screamed. Yeah, yeah, they screamed, right? They got overly emotional. Um, their voice goes up, right? They start using their hands in an animated fashion. That's the thing, right? It, 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 all the other stuff is clutter, rhetorical clutter. That is the thing. So listen for frequency and listen for intensity. 
the goal here is to really figure out what it is the other person is saying and to respect them enough to let them say that thing. It is not to start generating a counter-argument the moment you identify the thing or to manipulate. It's to understand deeply what it is you're trying to do. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make is they, they hear 50 things and they go, I'm going to respond to these 50 things. If you've heard 50 things, chances are you've heard five is what I'm saying. Yeah. Pick the one that mattered most and get rid of all, all the clutter. Thing number two. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Kenneth Burke later. I've talked a lot a bit about Kenneth Burke in the past. Thing number two is find points of identification, right? So Burke has this concept of identification where you and I would find pieces of our substance functionally that are similar enough that we can relate on a thing. And at one point, I think in Rhetoric of Motives, Burke even makes the claim that like without identification, there is no persuasion. If you and I cannot find some common ground functionally, we're not going to move each other on things. And so to clarify this, you're looking for anything you can on a Venn diagram. So yeah. say I'm um, a hardcore asshole flying a rebel flag. Yep. And you've heard me talk about my rebel flag. Yep. And I get real heated and start screaming about like the act of heritage and identification with, with a group. Right. Um, you're not going to say... I too love the stars and bar. No. Like that's not identification. No, you're talking about like I too find it important to like feel part of this group. That's right. And be connected to a past. Yep. Like you're you're getting as far as you can without making shit up. Yeah. Because that would be doing it for the bad reason. That's right. right. And it wouldn't be part of your substance. Right. That's the important thing. I think that you know some of the value in finding. Um, something that you can speak to, which resonates with you and resonates with the other person, is that it puts the two of you, if only for a moment or if only for a topic, on an equal playing field where you two understand each other's worldview, if only slightly more. Mm -hmm. But because I understand your worldview a little bit more and you understand my worldview a little bit more, now we have a similar similar place from which to start when we talk about an issue or or, 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 or an objective, you know? So find some point of identification. Don't sacrifice your values, principles, morals. Find some substantive piece of you and some substantive piece of that person where there is commonality. Thing three that you should do is ask questions. So you've listened. You've let them say their bit. You've listened for frequency and identity, to, uh, frequency and intensity to figure out what things are really bothering them or what the real issue is. You've listened and found points of identification in there, right? So this is a great example of Use Club. This person is going on and on about nothing that I agree with. But if I think more abstractly about what it is they're saying, right, I too can be like, well, I totally understand the need to, you know, really vociferously stand up for a thing that I believe in. You know what I mean? Yeah, to- you feel as if asking to take that flag down is negating your heritage and your clan. That's right. The, you're negating your sense of belonging. Right. And right. I, too, would find that objectionable if someone were to do that. Right. Yeah. Now, to be clear, none of this is about me saying equate yourself with a member of the KKK for the purposes of moving forward. But but what I am saying is— You're going to have to find something in common with the KKK guy if you want him not to be in the KKK. Anymore. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Right. So the third thing you should do is ask questions. Ask questions for two reasons. One, to fucking clarify. Um, I have seen more arguments, persuasive appeals, rhetorical appeals go wrong because I thought you said X, you actually said Y, and now I am arguing with or trying to move you on X. And we're not talking about the same thing anymore. So ask questions to clarify. Second reason you want to ask questions is because questions are a sign of good rhetorical faith. They show the other person that you're genuinely interested in their perspective, their ideas, their beliefs. I'm accepting that I could learn something here, too, yeah. so we are on an equal playing field. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a sign of benevolence, respect, good faith, that mm-hmm. I am genuinely interested in what it is that you're saying, and I want to know more about it. Yeah. Um, it sets an emotional, socio-emotional uh, play, uh, playing field 
where we're on the same page at least a little bit more. And again, all of this is just about moving towards a more shared understanding of the issue. So ask questions. Thing number four. Once, you, once you've listened, once you figure out where the two of you are kind of similar on this shit, and once you've asked some good questions, you've really pulled them into the conversation, let them elaborate, right? So now they're thinking through the thing, and they're telling you the thing, and they feel validated because you're, you're digging, right? You're investigating. Then you can start your part of the talking, right? And notice like how far and only back, then. Right. Notice how far back that is in the process yeah. for me, right? When you actually start talking. And uh, at... Don't let me put words in your mouth. Right. I think your argument would be starting it at any point before this in the process. It's game over. It's not like a light mistake. It's like you certainly made it more difficult. Yeah, you've you've definitely like right. harmed yourself. Yeah, the moment that you think you're in an argument and and it turns to fight or flight or antagonistic or agonistic, I guess. Yeah, when you're coming up against instinction burst and identification protection. That's right. Like identity protection. Sorry. Yeah, it's just point counterpoint, right? Yeah, two ships passing in the night. Yeah, all of this is about getting around that really kind of like very difficult barrier that is just an entry point in the conversation where we can share ideas. Mm -hmm. And what it's doing is it's establishing a setting where you feel more comfortable now taking an, an argumentative or rhetorical risk with me, and I feel more comfortable taking Because you're two people risk. talking. It's not this guy trying to convince me to do something. That's absolutely right. And if there's no risk involved, people are not going to be moved, right? I mean, you... People will be moved, but in order for us to have a really effective argument, there's got to be some sense of risk. Mark Wanicott, um, brilliant dude that I went to grad school with, I th- a listener of the podcast, I think. Uh, Mark and Janice are the ones that sent us that really uh, delicious La Creek Noir mm-hmm. from New Belgium a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, that was a good beer. You know, Mark said it so damn clear in a grad school class one night that, you know, if there's not risk involved in argument where you and I are willing to admit that, you know, for, for lack of a better term, I've lost some of my position because you've convinced me and vice versa. Mm-hmm. If we're not willing to give up some of what we started with, we're not moving anywhere. Yeah. So before you even start talking in an argument and forwarding your opinion or making a suggestion, for me, the most important thing you can do is establish a setting in which people just feel more comfortable that they're willing to risk their ideas a little bit because now you've got some room to move, which is why talking is the fourth thing in the yeah. step of five for me, right? And, and when you start talking, what you need to do is tell a coherent story. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, like, you know, fucking fairy tale. What I'm saying is when, you, when you're making a suggestion, make a suggestion which has some coherence, which resonates with the other person's life experience or what you've identified with them, uh, which integrates into their frame, their perspective in a weird way, right? We found common ground around this. You know, I would find it objectionable, too, if someone tore, you know, my banner out of my fucking front yard or whatever it is. Tell a story for that person that integrates very nicely into how it is they feel about things or how they're seeing things so that what you can also do there is you can give them something easy to digest. If something, Walter Fisher's human communication is narration is human communication paradigm, which is the first article that Fisher writes in 1984 on the narrative paradigm, which kind of becomes, you know, the, the explanation par excellence for years of human communication. Fisher's whole point is that stories resonate for one of two reasons. Either they hang together logically. I can see how the beginning got to the end or it resonates with me, right? That speaks to my experience. Um, and if you tell a story which violates either of those things, it gets much harder for the other person to say, okay, well, now now I see where you're coming from. And now I see where you're coming from is very important when you're trying to move people. So um, to use our example argument here, yeah, it would definitely be more effective rather than saying, well, you're a racist. Yeah, absolutely. To be uh, – well, I understand that you find that having your heritage negated is problematic uh, and, and painful. Um, 
But do you recognize that the stars and bars are used sometimes by people not as good as yourself, who mean about it personal heritage, has nothing to do antagonistic against different groups? But do you recognize that people use that symbol in that way sometimes? Right. Like, have yeah. you seen people with Nazi flags and things? And, and they will probably say yes, yeah. that some people are wearing it for antagonist reasons. Right. Well, there are people who see that as a negation of their heritage. Exactly. And, and the fact that you're pulling the flag is, is that. So if you, in two, find that, uncomfortable to have that heritage ripped away from right. you um and you acknowledge that even though it's not you right that symbol is being used by other people to do it and will be read as such yeah um, perhaps the problem is not that it's tearing down your heritage it's that it's your prioritizing you're prioritizing your heritage over those of others. that's exactly right and what you know like, and that might be more persuasive than you know your racist douchebag even though that may be true right but truth isn't necessarily effective right remember that the goal uh not the you know, argue, argument is a tricky thing, right? For for a lot of the Greeks, the goal of argument was truth in some weird way, right? Oh yeah, you you argue to get closer to the gods, right? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Platonic forms, and, yeah. and 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 that's okay. But truth is not always the outcome of argument, right? Sometimes, or, or, or if it is, it might be a little t truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's totally okay. And, and the manner in which you approach that example is great because the first thing you did is you asked questions to pull that person into the conversation. Would you agree? And establish? Can some we premises. establish? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Then you, you, you talked, right? Then you made a somewhat declarative statement forward an opinion or a suggestion, which used those established premises, which only exist because of the question asking, yeah. to then move the ball forward in a slightly different direction. You know what I mean? So tell a story that resonates with their experience, that integrates into their perspective, and that hangs together. Seems to make sense from start to finish with what it is they're saying. Then fifth and finally... This is where things get a little tricky. Now you have to start using your rhetorical jujitsu, your expertise, I should say, to determine when it is appropriate again to ask more questions or to talk more. Because you may have missed the point of identification. That's right. You, you may have missed on the listening part. That's right. And some of the most uh, persuasive, rhetorically effective people I've ever met are people that don't do a lot of talking but instead do a lot of question ask- asking with an occasional – metaphor, anecdote, story, explanation in the middle of those things. Yeah. Because in some instances, you know, asking a question is probably a more rhetorically powerful device than saying something else that you believe. But the moment you think that being an effective orator, persuader, rhetorician, speaker, arguer is about you and not about the other person, you've already lost. Yeah, and there's counterintelligence in that listening part thing. Like, we have, like, when they say it's about my heritage, right? it's not about that. Right, and there are things... They're screaming on that loud point, not because it's necessarily the most emotionally effective of the points they have for this reason. Right. It is because of the talking point that they've been led to would believe would have the most success in that instance. That's right, yeah. So you you might have to ask more questions to get to the real reason. To get to the core of the thing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, right? Um, You have to have mutual respect for the other person as much as you can at least such that you can start a conversation. The reality is if you don't respect the other person, you're, you're probably not going to persuade them. Punch Nazis. Right, that's right. It, nor, nor will they persuade you. I mean, yeah. it's the nature of the beast. So here are, here's my quick attempt to lose bonus points, follow-up reading. <laughs> I'm a fan of the nuts and bolts stuff, but the, you know, the nuts and bolts stuff for someone who hasn't read any com theory or anything probably isn't nuts and bolts stuff. So, you know. <laughs> Welcome to hell. Yeah, so in, enjoy your evening. <laughs> A couple recommendations. One, and I've already talked about it, Walter Fisher, uh, 1984 article, Narration is Human Communication Paradigm, is absolutely fucking phenomenal on this question. Um, He uses uh, the nuclear scare 
at Three Mile Island, I think. I've forgotten. It's been so long since I read Fisher, and that feels bad. I think it's the nuclear scare at Three Mile Island and the failure of scientists at Three Mile Island to explain things narratively to the public and rather try to use technical jargon in explaining things to the public that probably made the problem fucking worse because people didn't understand the technical jargon, but had they, had they used a more narrative style in yeah. interacting with people, right? Uh, second thing I would recommend, Stephen Toolman's The Uses of Argument, uh, which is a, a, a full text, and it's kind of become the model that most people use in introduction to argumentation classes to teach argumentation. Um, it's totally boring. Uh, Toolman, if I remember correctly, is a logician trying to find a model of argument that works in a setting. or Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Word math. Right. <laughs> Yay. Well, yeah, but there, there's actually – so Toolman kind of stumbles into this like really interesting rhetorical approach to argument where he treats argument as a three-part formula, claim, data, warrant, and then some other pieces – uh, Chaim Perlman also takes a kind of similar rhetorical approach to argument called the realm of rhetoric, which is very interesting. And this is in distinction to the hyperlogicians, the pragma dialecticians, who treat argument as a A1, B1, A2, B2, and, and like the interaction of integers and, and, and models. Like that, fuck that shit. I had a band called the pragma dialecticians. Yeah. We weren't very popular. Absolutely you weren't. <laughs> uh, much like some of this scholarship. Um, and then number three, this is my one last opportunity to uh, love on Kenneth Burke a little bit, but none of the books... Burke hype! Yeah, none of the Burke Burke books. Three articles, Terministic Screens, The Rhetoric of Hitler's Battle, which I still think to this day is the single greatest piece of criticism I've ever read, and Definition of Man, um, are all just really like masterclasses in explaining how humans think about things and how words work to make them feel and think about things differently. So there's my bonus points turned non-bonus points. Uh, and with that, I will take all of, this, all of this nerd outing that I've done all over Ross's table. I'm going to clean up a little bit. Uh, we're going to grab some more beer, and we'll be back do, in just a minute. We're doing something way more silly next time. Yeah, so. definitely. What you drinking? Also, I believe a Bill Sundwall addition to our beer vocabulary. This is from Urban Chestnut Brewing out of St. Louis. Um, it is the Moon Monkey Ale. The Moon Monkey Ale. And uh, Stillwater Rule is in effect, even though I've already violated it. Once this show, I will try this thing live. It is an ale brewed with rice and ginger. Ooh, ginger's a dangerous ingredient. Ginger, ginger can go Sometimes real, it can be real great wrong. or real wrong. So here we go. He's taking a sip right now. The can actually does look very nice. I mean, it's got a really cool design. It's got like a monkey or face on it, I think. Uh, he's making a face. He's thinking. It, I'm just narrating. Don't. It might. This might be the weirdest beer I've ever had in my <laughs> entire life. So I wish my authentic laugh was like louder and it wasn't just sort of like a silent throat chuckle. It'd be better for audio, but like <laughs> the face you just made was just so perplexed. I don't. I could. It was about perplexed, not just about the beer, but about life. <laughs> so like, here's what Why happened. did it come to this? I drank the beer. Ginger hit me real hard up front. And mm. then everything that wasn't ginger, it didn't fade. It just <laughs> gone. Like, like the liquid disappeared from my mouth. Everything. It's the lightest. It hit you with the ginger left. You expected the right. And then it just gave you another Nothing ginger there. left. Nothing there. And then all I got on the front end is ginger still. I mean, it's the weirdest. It's like eating a big hawk of ginger from no, a sushi. No, that's tray. why I'm. Can I try it? That's now why I'm, I'm fucking intrigued. struggling to explain it. It's not that the ginger was so overpowering that everything else went away. It's that 
It's that literally the ginger, which is like, eh, it's there, but then there's just no <laughs> beer behind it. Caleb makes a great face. Yeah. Okay, I will give Urban Chestnut this. They finally made a beer that doesn't taste like chestnuts. Sure. All right. And guess what it tastes like? Fucking ginger, tastes, and that's it. Right. There's nothing else back there. It's like the beer evaporates out of your mouth. After three seconds, it's like, get out, and then Talk- just leaves ginger. <laughs> the beer shows up in your mouth, throws a ginger bomb, and then the beer leaves. Talk about music metaphor. It's like FFF staccato. Bow! Ginger. Uh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Like, yeah. in your face, and it's gone. Um, what do you rate that? So I'm going to do what, what, Does I, not compute what I've done error? a number of times. I'm going to give it a two, which is saying elsewhere. And reserve the right to, <laughs> to make it a one it to oh, yeah, by the end through. of you the You have to think things over. <laughs> I do. I'm a processor. Yeah. Uh, Caleb especially a snap decision. He really you. is. He's a lot of judgment over there is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, all right, Caleb, while I drink this anomaly of a liquid, what are we talking about? Uh, we are talking about in something nobody voted for, but I like doing it. So I decided we're fucking doing no it. No one voted for this? No, I don't give a shit. I'm doing it anyway. I like it. Uh, <laughs> Moxic. Make, uh, sorry, mix six mock draft. Hey, uh, I don't, I don't like saying it, um, but uh, we're going to do a little mock draft. Uh, I will say I have done this one before. We got to Gen Con, uh, the majority of the way to Gen Con, playing this mock draft before. Uh, but we're just going to limit it for our podcast because we did the entire high school once. But, oh, the entire faculty. I remember yeah, this. Uh, we're just doing core subjects. So subjects on standardized tests. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to do fictional characters to teach at a core subjects at a high school. And I'm going to mess with it. We're going to do snake order yep. again. All okay. right. Okay. But our, our characters work on the same faculty. So if something comes up on the previous one that's going to help or hurt your chances, you yep. need to address that. Okay. All right. Seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, how are we deciding who goes first? Oh, geez. Ross, what are we doing? We've done uh, dice before. Yeah, you have. I'm okay with doing dice again. It seems it seems fair. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, I, I have some dice. He's getting right here. the dice. Chris, yeah. do you have a twenty sided die? He's uh, getting the dice. Do you have a six sided die? Do you want a Do you want a black or a blue? Could, could I have dice? a blue twenty sided die? And could you give Caleb a red six sided die? <laughs> that's, uh, not, that's not fair. That's not fair. Huh, weird. Drink your ginger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All Your right. pure. Undiluted ginger. Now that's uh, not a sharpened. Cool. That's a three. I, I, not gra- I might have made that with, with a six. Yeah, I go first. Okay, right. Right. Uh, we're starting with math class. Do you want to start with math class? Well, really quickly. So, core subjects we're doing math, English, science, and like history, civics. That bit. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. All right. So this one's going to be kind of out there. Yep. My math teacher. Yep. Is the cryptarch from Destiny? Wow! Look at that theme. Hot damn. All right, go on. Explain yourself. So in Destiny, you get loot drops, which are contained in Ingrams, which if you read the bullshit cards that they use to convey the entirety of the story of of Destiny, the lore, um, Ingrams are the fourth stage of matter in which matter is converted into pure data. Is that true? Yes. Oh. And so uh, the Ingrams, these little shapes you get that decrypt into guns, are the data that makes guns... And then you do a formula, and then it turns into physical gun. So, can you imagine a math teacher that's more engaging, just like, hey, bring your mom into school. She's a dodecahedron now. All right, let's defuse her. Hey, here they are, Miss Smith. You're, like, you can literally... You turn- sounds more like a shop class teacher. <laughs> well, but yeah, but like, how do you turn your tools into not 
abstract shapes. Sure. Like, but how do you turn everything you've ever owned into an abstract shape? Like, yeah. I, I feel like if you basically, my math teacher will teach me how to make a bag of holding right. in which I can contain all objects mm-hmm. and decrypt them at my will and become a god unto men. I'm going to listen to him. Plus, he's got a cool little mask. He's got great robes. He's got a hood. He's got some regalia going on. You feel like he's pretty academic. So the Cryptarch, he teaches math. Uh, the second part of your argument there wasn't very strong because you also just described it like a clans member, like as maybe being an effective math teacher. <laughs> okay. So, all yeah, right. Well, you're just right. All right, yeah. you're, you're in it to win it then. All I right. am because, <laughs> because amidst all of your explanation of the Cryptarch, you said, can you imagine a more engaging math teacher? And it just so happens that I can <laughs> That works with the cryptarch. His name is Zeus Carver. It's Samuel L. Jackson's role <laughs> in Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> really? Now, hear me out. Okay. All right. I'm gonna. Le- I'm letting you win on this one. Yeah. I'm letting you win on this one. Hear me out. Uh, at a pivotal point. So the whole premise of Die Hard with a Vengeance is that Jeremy Irons, who's getting who's getting revenge for Hans Gruber's death, played by Alan Rickman is sending Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson around New York City solving these ridiculous puzzles. One of the puzzles at a fountain in New York City requires Bruce Willis... It's a Willis pretty classic math word problem. ...and Samuel L. Jackson, yeah, using two tubs to fill up two tubs of equal volume by filling them up and pouring them out and filling them up again to yield the perfect equation. I will say he has the best answer to when am I ever going to use this Ever. Yes, absolutely. When are we ever going to use this? Listen, motherfucker. Yeah. One day you might have to save New York. Right. And so that, I was just working at the pawn shop one day, and then I was doing puzzles. Like, that yeah. was my thinking, right? <laughs> like, because I'm thinking about myself as a math student, and I was an awful math student. And the whole time I'm sitting there like, when am I ever going to use this ever? So not only can he teach me how to solve problems, but when I get lippy with him, I'm going to get Samuel L. jackson back. And that's going to be an empowering moment for him and for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Classroom management's going to be A+. plus. Oh, my God. I can't think – I cannot think of a better person. If I walked in to Blue Springs High School and Samuel L. Jackson was teaching math, I would be I would be the most excited kid in the world. I would take all the math. All right. Well, to be honest, he's also not going to give all the kids space guns. Right. And that. <laughs> Safety first. Yeah. So He's going to give them data that represents space guns. Right. But mm. uh, I'm so dedicated to the concept of education that I'm giving you that one. That would be great. I, I want Zeus as a math teacher, too. Yeah. Uh, now, Snake Draft, you're yep. up next. I am up next. Okay. So uh, what do you want to do? You want to do science? Yeah, sure. All right. So science. This one I had to think long and hard. There are so many people that you could, in theory, choose to be yeah. science teachers in all of fiction. It feels like fiction is 95%, not to mention all of science fiction, right? There's a whole fucking genre uh, of this. So I thought long and hard about who would be an interesting science teacher. And for me, it's the person that I would be fascinated by that would be like a little bit mercurial, interesting, couldn't quite explain and would also do some crazy shit, right? Because the best science teachers I had were always the ones who were like pretty good at explaining the concepts, but they'd also do some crazy shit to get you to be like, ooh, science. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought, okay, who would do some crazy shit and also be able to explain insane stuff for me? And the best answer I could come up with is Egg Shin, played by Victor Wong on Big Trouble in Little China. The man who figures out functionally how to kill David Lopan, right? <laughs> Uh, or Lopan, I should say, uh, and also like spends the bulk of the movie telling all of these great tales of lore about you know the weather god, the the the, the three gods, the three storms. Sorry, and then also sits in that little weird workshop that he has and starts mixing powders together to like scare off and fight 
all of the demons underneath Little China. So for me, I'd put egg shit in there. Well, you know, one concern, eh, probably a safety risk to have in high school. It does make a lot of explosive stuff. But yeah. you, you've also... Also not a scientist. Right. Well, okay. I don't, I don't, we don't need to get into that. You've also given them the power to make anything. So I feel like my high school is still net safer than yours. Yeah. You know, the hellhole that you're building. Uh, your, your choice for a science teacher? Uh, obvious. Miss Frizzle. Yeah, okay. Wasted as a bus driver. Uh, get a pay raise. Yeah. She goes on field trips. Right. She can drive the bus. She's got the license for it. Right. Uh, furthermore, she can magically teleport people to everywhere. So, like, you're going to be talking to, like, doctors and be like, well, this is a white blood cell. It's like, no, it's not. You drew that wrong. This is what it looked. I know. It ate Davy last week. <laughs> but he miraculously survived because our teacher's a dark god who right. can do anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, it, it's hands down, Frizzle. It's not even close, Frizzle. Yeah. Like, she's supportive. She will protect the children against all odds. Um, and, you know, real hands-on learning all the time because yeah. she can control all of space and time. So, I mean, you got to go frizzle. You might be onto something a little bit there. Omniscient um, um, space gods is the theme I'm detecting. Yeah, definitely a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, okay. Third pick. And Samuel Jackson. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, do you want to do uh, history next or you want to do English? Uh, I'm going to do... Let's do English. Okay, jump in there. All right. This is going to be edgy pick. That thing from the Tommyknockers. <laughs> what? <laughs> the metal object from the Tommyknockers that emits the gas. All right? So, look. It kind of turns you into an alien and makes you psychotic if you are overexposed. What happens before you're overexposed? You're writing novels that are, like, better than a professional novelist. You're, like, creating art. You're doing whatever you want, and you're not just doing it. You're doing it at a level that you never perceived for and a technical mastery you never had I before. think that you violated the rules here. Uh, no, you just go in the room. No. There's the metal thing emitting the gas. No. And you don't go too long in the room because you only have, like, what, 52 minutes max on a regular schedule? I don't know. So you're just in the room with you the English nice orb. Spritz. I feel like... I feel uh, like- you're just in the room with the English orb for a min- enough time <laughs> to get a great idea for a novel and learn where all your commas go, and then you leave before you become a psychotic alien monster. I don't know. Because it know. takes weeks in the book for them to go all crazy in the town to go nuts. You're having little minor hits of your you know, magic English creativity juice that also inspires all sorts of technical expertise. So I'm just saying, you just go in the English room, you get real inspired, huffing the gas, and then you leave before you turn into an alien hell monster. Here's- to be fair, I think charter schools would love to have that. <laughs> the, the metal object <laughs> yeah. that emits gas. I just, oh. I, the thing I don't like about this pick is that, like, for math or science, I could have said, like, the tumor in John Travolta's brain in phenomena. <laughs> like, that's, that's what you justified. <laughs> It'd be pretty good. Right. <laughs> I, like I mean, tell me he didn't know math and science, I feel, though. I feel like that's fucking You cheating. need those test scores up. They're going to close the school. It's also not a person. It's an object uh, that doesn't have... Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, right. I mean, you think it's an object. It appears as one you don't know man we found it in the woods and we started writing real good so we put it in this room and the kids huff off of it and then we're going about our chess scores also you don't have to pay a metal orb you found in the woods i think you have to pay for like a hazmat lab to keep the (laughs) fumes and a ton of coffins if like class runs late or the bell doesn't work so yeah. yeah you don't want him Manage it a field trip. So, um, so I chose an actual fictional person uh, to kind of bring things back to ground. Could be a person. You don't understand alien personhood. Kilgore Trout uh, of all, almost all 
of the Vonnegut. Wars. All the best English teachers are failed writers, That's full right. of resentment. Well, I mean, you know, there's something. You know what? Actually, no explanation. You may have given it for me. Okay, that's how I feel. I would like Kilgore Trout to teach kids about English. All right, and if you've not read some Vonnegut and are unfamiliar with Kilgore Trout, Google him or do yourself a favor and read some fucking Vonnegut. And that's all I'll say on the matter. I should win this round just by way of having named a fictional person. All right, and in true snake order fashion, we're going to end on history mm-hmm. and I go, I'm going to go first uh, this one I've got some I've got some conditions here I would like for Russell T. Davies to write the material for the classes and David Tennant's Doctor Who to deliver them <laughs> so <laughs> David Tennant playing Russell T. Davies as a teacher no David Tennant playing Doctor Who but he brings lectures in written by Russell T. Davies <laughs> oh okay and that's but not how- actually Doctor Who well, yeah, I mean... Okay, so actually Doctor Who. Yeah, Doctor Who, but David the, that, Tennant's... That regeneration of him. Yes, David okay. Tennant's version of Doctor Who, but yeah. I would like for him to get his material... Yeah, Capaldi's a very different educator. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, a different class. And I feel like, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Stephen Moffat hasn't as much written history as he had like a 17-year-old girl's angsty diary, and yeah. so I just want to... I want to get back to the positivity of history um, and the non-positivity. And when it's not positive, I want it to be treated appropriately. But mostly I just want David Tennant to teach it to me and or the students of this much safer school than the one that you've set up. Except to be clear, the time lord. To be clear. That b- the Daleks t- are going to come. Well, yeah, but two of, three, <laughs> two of three of Caleb's choices are explicitly death-creating machines. <laughs> To what? be fair, if the day, if you have a time lord, you should might as well get a space gun. Like okay, the cryptarch also decrypts like clothes. Yeah, it's not all guns and grenades and shit. You can make. Anything I want the cryptarch around if the time lords are around because the Daleks and the fucking <laughs> no, angels. You don't. You the want Cybermen the, are going to show make time- in exotics. Yeah. 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 Have you watched Doctor Who? If you know what you want around if Daleks show up, a fucking time lord. And I already, I already dibs him. Yeah, man. but there's a lot of a lot of collateral damage. I don't. Have you seen an episode of Doctor Who? Now I'm curious if you've seen an episode of Doctor There's Who. There's a lot of clatter. Um, Caleb, who did you go with for history? Steve Rogers. Yeah. That seems okay, first like off, a, he's a history chose. And he's I'm, a great I'm assuming we're talking about a U.S. school because we did talk about English class. We did. Okay? Yeah. If it's a U.S. school and he teaches history, he's got a coach too. Right. So you know who's great at whatever sport you put him coaching in? Steve Rogers, Captain America. You know who could also teach math on an off period, so you don't have to pay a full math teacher if you have a small school? Steve Rogers, he's a professional illustrator. And you know who makes me believe in America without sidestepping any of the problems in America? Captain motherfucking America. It's true. So he's going to teach you about civics. He's going to teach you how you write your congressman. And then he's also going to say, you know, like, and you know, we have problems. We have history. Uh, you know, I lived through some of it. It's it's hard. I, I feel woke now. Occasionally, your government's taken over by magic sci-fi space Nazis. But at that point, you know, it's your duty as a citizen, as as an American, to punch them and uh, <laughs> resume the dream that is democracy. And it's imperfectly executed. But it's your responsibility to do what you can, like. Danny Pudi, like, working a terminal playing Galaga. Mm-hmm. Like, it's your responsibility to, like, sacrifice your... Like, it, what do you want from a civics teacher that you don't get out of Steve Rogers? No, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Did you just say, I'm woke now? Like, in the in the 18-year-old parlance? Like, now yeah. I understand? Steve Rogers knows what woke is now. He's, right. been, around, he's been awake for a sure, few years. Totally. Yeah. Here's my one concern about that pick. I've seen... Also, he's friends with Falcon, and he made him listen to Redbone. Like, that's definitely you true. Know that's, you know that's fucking Here's true. my one concern about Cap. I have seen Spider-Man Homecoming. 
and I've seen Cap's educational videos, <laughs> and they were lackluster at best. But here's the thing. That's because Cap's not in front of real audiences. Mm. He thrives with a real audience. He False. doesn't thrive in front of a TV. False. Because that whole montage in Cap 1, uh, like for a little while, he's great. But with, but with an audience that doesn't love him, a.k.a. all high, high school students. Because he's not writing his own material. He gives up, man. He's not writing his own material, man. Right. When he's in head of his own classroom, he's writing his own lesson plan. And you know what? When he does convince people to do stuff, yeah. when he gets on a PA and starts talking about America, and convinces a bunch of like fat like behind the scenes shield people to like draw down and start a fucking gunfight with a bunch of secret Nazis like that's persuasive that's flag waving yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I want that in my history teacher you know who I want writing their own material Russell T Davies and that's why I win this thing <laughs> and he's gonna do great if he's next to the room with the orb producing oh, the Christ. good English <laughs> All right. uh, hey this has been another mix six mock draft uh, listen uh, as, as you are all more than happy to do weigh in on who you think won and who you think lost just to keep score, I think I'm three and zero at this point. Uh, so don't I conceded on one. I think I still won the other. Three. Don't, don't forget to use hashtag Team Caleb or hashtag Team Spencer once you finally hear this nonsense to let us know who you think won. I'll retweet all of the ones that say hashtag Team Spencer. So if you're just looking for retweet bait, you know how to make. Stand this on one. your desk and right. say Captain over Captain to the, the gas actual orb. the actual Captain. You didn't even go with the actual Captain. <laughs> no, now. no, the gas orb inspires more loyalty. All right, we're getting more beer, and we'll be back on the other side for segment number five, and we're going to talk about getting lit richer. What's that beer you have there? I am drinking an Abita Two Goza, which is a solid Bob's Burger esque pun. So it's getting points on that. Absolutely. Out of the gate, to be honest. It's a key lime sea salt sour, another Bill buy. Thank you very much, Bill. I have not yet tried it, so I'm going to give it a shot. Still water roll. Yep, he's taking a sip right now. Nice bottle design, by the way, or at least the label. Really simple. Yeah. We haven't done much. Good color scheme. We haven't done much Abita on here either. Yeah. It's good good spot by Bill to grab a couple Ooh, of Ooh, he's taking a second sip before he's deciding. Going back. This is This is a complex. Perplexed. This is going to be difficult. Uh, struggling a little bit. I don't bit. know. Has the same face that someone might have if they went into a math class and someone handed them an ingram. <laughs> oh, man. they haven't learned to decrypt it yet. Right, that's sorry. the entire purpose of the class. Uh-huh. Um, we're getting off topic. Uh, I think that's an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, okay. It's like a fancy Corona. Ooh, let me get that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like a fancy Corona. I kind of want to try that, too. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's fancy Corona. Yeah, but that's a four for me. Oh, it's four for you? That's fair. Because you took a Corona, which is a three, and you fancied it up, got it all gussied up to go to the ball. <laughs> it's a four. That's a four I like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, Probably. it might be, it might grow on me. I just like the distinctness of Corona makes me say, like, mm. yeah. Not totally reasonable. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pro that because I've had other attempts at like fancy Corona. I'm looking at you, Land Shark. But this is it. Like, I yeah. want this. I want this on tap at like Old Mexico. Yeah. Like, oh my god, I would drink. I want to. I want to sit on like a like a patio with some chips and like oh, a TV I would, and, and I dip. Wanna, and I yes. Yeah. And I want to. Now dip. you're just describing that. It's a four now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Now you're describing See that. See what it I did there, folks. See what I listened like, to his rating. I asked him questions. Are you sure it's a four? And then once he let his he point, got me, know, he got me good. Holy shit! Slid right up in there with the. I'm just, let me tell I'm, you a story. I'm, I am just saying that like it's a three by itself, but if it had some food with it. 
it would be a solid. I want someone to play that back and then map it against the five steps that I gave you and tell me hey, if to I'm be wrong. clear, we were never saying that uh, Spencer never convinced me to say <laughs> or do super shit because right. that's objectively not true. Absolutely false. That's pretty much the history of our friendship. Anyway, anyway, what are we? Uh, what yeah. are we talking about? So this is getting literature. It's your number two pick this week on the surveys. Thanks so much for voting again. It always blows my mind how many responses we get to those things um, because that means that you people actually look at your emails and take a hot second to vote on this stuff, which is just the fucking coolest. So yes. thank you so much. Um, and our subtopic today, this is the trash cannon, is a phrase that you and I have been kicking around for some time now. Ever since Joel Hawkins was a town. Ever since Joel Hawkins we was We coined here. it at the worst bar ever that you made us drink at. That's absolutely right. And we were talking uh, whilst at Tropical Liqueurs in Springfield, Missouri. Not a recommendation. Do not think that's a <laughs> medium. <laughs> we, we were talking about like all of the books that people have over and over again told you that you should read because they'll somehow make you a better person. Yeah. And, or force you to read. Or force you to read. Yeah, in, yeah. in a hostage-like attempt to make you a better person. And so in the course of time, this conversation kind of morphed into if you were putting together a syllabus for a course – that was in that vein. What books would fit in that syllabus? And and somewhere along the way, we dubbed the phrase, I believe you dubbed the phrase, the trash cannon, right? I can't remember who dubbed it. I, I think of it as a cannon with three ends in that it is a it is a piece of trash fired directly out of a- offensively at your face. Like, you have no choice but to read it. Would never have read it but for being forced to have read it. Yeah. And so, uh, have not left a better person like you were promised. So, so. today what we're going to do is we're going to define for you a little more clearly what the trash cannon is. And then we're going to give you our top three picks for inclusion in the trash cannon. And it appears that we've both done some bonus picks. Yeah. So when I think of the trash cannon, in what setting am, am I really thinking about having to read these books? And the best thing I can come up with is, do you remember Greg Kinnear's role in Little Miss Sunshine? The first time you meet Greg Kinnear... That guy told you to read this. That's right. He's piloting like a self-help class with a self-help system he's developed, and there's only like a few people in the room. But it's the type of books that I think would be hawked in that setting. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean just because we've put... This is, I know this is confusing, which is why I'm saying it. Because we've put these books in what we're calling the trash canon, which is, if you understand English, not a particularly great <laughs> reading of these texts, that doesn't mean that I don't think that these texts have some value and aren't effective texts in certain instances. The question, rather, is what would be thrown in that type of setting? What's the most likely books to be put in that space, right? Yeah. I think some of these books have great value. <laughs> I don't. Okay. And, and My have, list is not And have not been that. have been very helpful to people. <clears throat> I think they might have value in different contexts. Yes, yeah, that's right. But so that's, they're consistently misapplied yeah, into contexts in which they are not useful in any way. That, for me, is form. the thing. They've lost almost all of their meaning because they've been so misappropriated. Mo- so abused. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. Thrown in a trash can. So we've bo- yeah, exactly. Right. So we've both got uh, bonus picks here. I'm going to let you start with uh, your, your bonus pick. All right, this is a book I think has no worth in any context. Any. Uh, that's my honorable mention, which is The Secret. Yep. And you can expand that to any cult of optimism. Positive thinking makes things magically happen. Yep. Oprah book club bullshit. Uh, but The Secret is perhaps top of the, uh, list. the top of the list. Yep. Because it hides what The Secret actually is to get you to buy the book. And also because The Secret 
is not a secret. It's not. It's just bullshit. It's just awful. Um, so in in the cut episode, the legendary episode nine that was not. Yep. I talked about the book that I like mess nonfiction text. Yep. Uh, the called Bright Sided by Barbara Onrek, right. which is a, just a takedown of this nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the flip side of that coin. Like the shit that Barbara Onrek takes down is like being a nefarious monster cult of optimism. Right. Is purely represented by the secret and the idea that like our company is failing and I might lose my job and we all need to read the secret and write mind checks to right. the universe yeah. so it will help our quarterly sales is perhaps the most damaging and depressing idea I can possibly think in Amen. words. Yeah. Uh, for my bonus pick, I've also chosen a lot of that stuff that gets thrown into the organization in crisis bucket. Yeah. For me, as someone who taught leadership at, in an academic setting and has taught a number of leadership courses and seminars and trainings in a professional setting, a, a consulting setting, a lot of those leadership texts are awful. Um, and, and, you know, like John C. Maxwell, Maxwell's The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Maxwell actually has a ton of books in that. And then also the one... An easy to remember 21 different things. Yeah, you know, no big deal. Just, just rolls do, off the Just top. do these 21 things. <laughs> and, and, you know, for me, the thing I hate about this, that is this idea that because you've looked at a couple of different leaders in a variety of industries and they've had these qualities, therefore these are irrefutable laws of people who lead effectively. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Another one that gets thrown around way too much... Uh, and has kind of ruined the meaning of the text, I think, in some ways, is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Uh, it fits very, very succinctly into this category of, like, crappy organizational strategy book that we read because, oh, my God, we didn't have an organizational strategy when we started this shit. Yeah. Um, Which, if you're reading as a book of, like, ancient Chinese history or, like, general, yep. like, yep. war historianism. That's like, right. A pretty great Get book. In there. Like, really yeah. enjoyable to read, too. Yeah. Yep. Not not appliable to the boardroom like everyone would have to say. Right, absolutely. I, I get that you've you've. So if the enemy is in a swamp, and uh, so <laughs> applying that to right. uh, the, the market, sale, the market. <laughs> right. Uber should, is a swamp. We, right. we uh, flank them. Yes, exactly. Right. With better marketing, yeah, get out of here. Yeah. Just don't be a fuck. That's kind of my rule in the boardroom. Okay. Uh, yeah. So those are our bonus picks. Let's get into the top three. So number three for you. Uh, pretty much anything that tells me how to plan around my or someone else's. MBTI, yeah, which is the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which perhaps might go down as the most bullshit test ever (laughs) after IQ, maybe? Astrology. And and there are some, yeah, (laughs) astrology is, you know what, astrology probably has more reliability. More scientific. At least it's based on like a date that stays the same, whereas if you take a Myers-Briggs test on a Monday, you have a completely different personality by a Tuesday, or five minutes after you finish the first test. Uh, and you know what? By sheer luck of coincidence and chance, it might have a better validity in predicting my behavior or anyone else's behavior. Um, it's unscientific nonsense that uh, would not be applicable to most psychology papers, any psychiatrist papers. And you know what? It's probably not going to save your business or your school or anything else. So um, you're just a person who worships the concept of leadership and other people have used it. And so you're doing it. You're not doing it based on any reflexive practice. In any case, I've seen it. When I the when I taught leadership at Missouri State University, uh, the fir- the second week, so I would always have my students take a Myers-Briggs because that's the, the nature of the course, right? That's what you do. So I'd have them take a Myers-Briggs. We'd talk about their Myers-Briggs in the second segment, second class every, every year. And for the third class, I would assign this really great piece uh, 
on the existentialism of personality assessments and have them read from this really great philosopher why personality assessments are just so fucked up in actual <laughs> moments of leadership and crisis. And then we would have a follow-up discussion. And it was always so interesting to see students just totally change their position, not from, oh, this isn't my personality type, but holy shit, why does that matter? Because in a moment of crisis, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Right? Yeah. I will say this. There's one redeeming thing as someone who's worked with these types of personality assessments a lot in a consulting space and a professional space. Sometimes it's useful to give people a taxonomy for um, broadly describing themselves so that I, they can interact with other people. I will say it's better than nothing right. because now you at least are reflexively thinking about what my personality is. Do, am I like that? Do I like do things like that? And how, how does that interact with other people? Having said that, I think that But 90% of the people who are making you take one are not that's right. in any way, shape, and form calling right. it that, well, calling it there. Yeah, and like, it's, it's manure-like treatment, you know, across yeah. all of like leadership and organizational psychology is just vomit-inducing. I remember in grad school, I was in a research class and like we had these lectures and lectures on the like, you know, reliability, repeatability, like what you need to do. It was all about like research. And then he made us all take Myers-Briggs tests. And then I knew it was all bullshit. Right. And we were just going to write his book that semester. And lo and behold, we did. I took a Myers-Briggs test, though, before I did it. Like it's just never, ever yeah. applied in a with the exception of your class. Right. Which is not applied as like, let's save our class by applying Myers-Briggs. Right. Um it's hardly ever applied well. Totally agree. Number three for me, which I thought that I'd change earlier and I not, so I just changed at the appropriate time. Any of the chicken soup for the soul books. Oh, God. Damn it. I'm angry I didn't pick those. They're so awful. They're awful. And, uh, you know, not. And I'm not saying that no judgment on how you deal with strife. Okay? How, how you deal with strife is how you deal with strife. Judgment, though, on the manipulation of strife. In, in in a million different settings. So it was one thing when it was chicken soup for the soul. But then you would go into, like, you know, loved ones' bathrooms, and on top of their toilets they would have, like, chicken soup for the golfer's soul, and, like, chicken soup for the knitter's soul, oh and chicken soup God. for the pet lover's soul. And it's like, you know what, everybody, I just want to say something. Knitters deal right. with grief right. in a unique and unreproducible way. Right. And so <laughs> the, the idea that we had to come up with this, like, common you know, Luddite-esque language for dealing with difficulty and then spread it across any instance in which you may have difficulty is, it's fucking mind-numbing to me, and I, I just, it makes me want to gag a little bit. <laughs> not not unlike the moon monkey, only sometime, okay? So, what's number two for you? Uh, so, for me, this is an expansion off your Art of War thing, because I, I quite like the Art of War, and I do think that there are elements of the Art of War um, that can be applied generally. Not mm -hmm. all of it by any means. It definitely depends on the translation. But like the concept of emptiness and fullness, like right. do not do not travel to the fight. Yeah. Let the fight come to you. Yeah. Like I, I get that in terms of like broad conflict. And I understand maybe reading that in some business yeah. aspects. The problem I have is that they read Art of War and maybe they get something useful out of it. Yeah. And then they go to Samurai Business School. Yeah. And at that point, yeah. it gets absolutely stupid. Yeah. Book of Five Rings. <laughs> so the Book of Five Rings. Yeah. If you've ever read the Book of Five Rings by Mayamata Masashi, the sword saint, he's just a guy who killed a bunch of dudes with the sword. He's got nothing to say about your profit margins. So, like, 
stab a motherfucker in the face first. Don't do anything else. Just stab for the face is not super useful. It's not a metaphor. It is, yeah, it is not stab a metaphor. In the face. He's literally talking about stabbing people in the face. Uh, my other favorite is from uh, the, the book you've probably seen quoted in Ghost Dog of Jim Jarmusch, The Haga Cure, which is written by a samurai who was also not a good samurai. Like <laughs> He was like a shitty seventh vassal uh, calligraphy expert and like so when you're when your stupid boss is up there telling you like think of the business as already bankrupt then you cannot die right. like you need to roll your eyes so hard you find a different job absolutely true um yeah and so like i i think the art of war is over mis- yeah. like misapplied uh, overused but i think like it's even worse when that yep. leads down the road of like well Spearing a yep. person is the same as you right. know meeting our quarterly margins. Yeah. Right. No, you're absolutely right. You've actually probably picked a better version of what it is I was going for there. Number two for me. So I, I've picked one text, but kind of like you, this is a bucket of things. Um, How to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie, Ugh. which you could also sub in uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Anything, any of those texts, and there's a ton by Carnegie, and there's a ton by Hill, and there's uh, you know probably some more by Covey. Any of those things. You you talked about them earlier. It's kind of like this optimism bullshit, right? Any of those things which tell you that there is a positive thinking alone will get it done. Positive thinking and and a rhetorical a just rhetorical skill set. Your, just believed you, Sarah, will work and it right. will work. Yeah, po- positive thinking and a specific rhetorical skill set will get you anything that you want in the world. Yeah, um, I'm typically not moved by those things, and actually, I think probably the the more nefarious problem there. I've had students in persuasion classes who, in preparation for the courses, have come up to me and said, you know, I've been reading this or I've been reading that, and they're the Napoleon Hill and the Carnegie books. And now they're stuck in these really limited paradigms that don't offer a lot in the way of global thinking about all of the settings in which one might need to be persuasive or tactical thinking in the ways in which one might vary their strategies based on a variety of different context features. They offer these kind of like high-level, cheap, um, uh, anecdotal assessments of how one might be better. Uh, and, I, and I'm not about that life. What's number platitudes. one? Yeah, platitudes. That's exactly right. Yeah, they're platitudes. Number one for you is also number one for me, and I'm going to let you jump in on this. Uh, seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. Oh, my God. Stephen Covey, and good on him, first and foremost, literally no judgment, because Stephen Covey has found a way to take one book and make it Maybe the preeminent text for organizational development and organizational leadership. And I know that um, Sarah has had to go through. I have read this book as an educator. Right. I have read this book as a fast food worker. Yep. I have read this book as a bakery worker. Read it as a student. I've read this book as a student. Yep. And I've read this book as a orderly. Yep. No. Yep. The, it wasn't effective in any of them. And they were all supposed to magically cure things. That's right. Furthermore, like, it's just like Mormon be nice propaganda. Mm-hmm. Like, and like, I'm not saying don't be nice. I'm not saying don't be Mormon. Right. I'm saying it's not applicable to every job that has ever existed. If we're talking about trash cannon, this is the one aimed at the most amount of faces. That's right. In the most amount of contexts. Yeah. Yep. With the least amount of actual product yes, behind it correct yeah no i totally agree with you Th- this is the um I, I i cannot think of a relevant metaphor but i'm trying to describe something which lacks depth purposefully lacks some depth 
but is then applied in as many ways as possible as if it had depth. Number thing, number three is literally a tautology. Yes. Like, yes, correct. First things first. Right. It's literally circular logic. It's right. literally the thing you use to teach right. logical fallacies. Yeah. Is the is 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 one seventh of the steps? Right. That's right. You you know what is? Uh, I've recently been watching a lot of Thirty Rock, and I was struck the other day. Brandy and I were kind of having this conversation. I, I find more more wisdom in in Liz Lemon's Deal Breakers than I do in the Seven Habits of Highly yeah, Effective yes. People, because at least there are rules in there. Like you know, if your man wears a, a chain necklace that says "Open Marriage Deal Breaker," it's like boom, I can do something with that motherfucker. Okay, but put first things first. You have not helped. Yeah, like the concept of synergy is now a joke. It's been so misapplied yeah. and misused. And yet people will still use this book recognizing that one of the tenets is synergy. Like, it's, it's absurd. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so here's the trick. I'm broken. I, I don't even know how to do it. Like, why? Here, here's the trick. It, not saying these books can't be helpful if applied in the right context. Not saying that these books haven't helped you in some way. And if they have, great. Love that. What we are trying to do, though, is say that there are probably a core collection of texts, some of which we have identified, many of which we have left out given time and space constraints, that would you would probably to probably be asked to read in a course roughly titled Be the Best Version of You, that you also had to pay to be a part of and then get also people to pay to be a part of. It's kind of how I feel about these types of if books. If it's applicable to everything, maybe if you're reading it to do anything but be good at everything – you're not reading the right thing. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. Like, if, if you're trying to read it for any context, professionally or personally or right. spiritually, right. maybe you should find a book, like, specific to that context yeah. and not think that there's a cure-all tweet right. that will cure all of your problems yeah. in 90 pages without any big words. You know what would be yeah. an interesting, interesting kind of, like, follow-up to this segment? So there's something to think about. Uh, if, like, we went over the trash cannon again and then offered... Hey, and here's a better version of this book. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, so that's like something that. to think about yeah. for the future. Um, that, but we're thinking about the future, so we need more beer. We do need more beer. Yeah. And we'll be back on the other side for Drunk Enough, where things might get weird. Spence, what are you drinking? So this is from uh, Role Playing Exchanges, Adam Thornsburg. He, I'm guessing, he gave you this at Gen Con. I, he just brought a bunch, and I just took one and hit it, and then took it back. With if me. you've been looking for your All Tex Lexington Brewing Company's Kentucky Bourbon Air Barrel Ale, Adam Ross stole it, and I'm about to drink it. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much for supplying that, such that Ross could take it off your hands. I'm about to give it a go live. Stillwater rule. I mean, Stillwater should really. He brought pay a, us he brought multiple ones. I've had, I've had one, so I don't want to spoil my review. To, um, to to taint Spencer's thinking. Well, yeah, I don't love that. Um, uh, it's okay, I guess. It's a three. Yeah, it's a three for me. It's a it's an Agents of Shield. Honestly, it could it could be a two under the right circumstances. I did just eat a Halloween themed Oreo, so you do have some sweetness cutting into it. It's possible that the orange cream residue in my mouth <laughs> is changing the flavor of the bourbon barrel ale. But for the most part, we're not foodies. If you haven't noticed yeah. here in the right. podcast, <laughs> well, look, we, it's a very smoky taste. It was, at least can it I try was for it? me. Yeah, you you can jump right in there. Maybe your palate is a little cleaner than mine. You can give me some context. If you'd like to convince me how I feel about it, there's a five-step plan a couple segments earlier, which will get you 
get you to. Oh, thinking. it's a three. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I I believe in truth. Right, and you are right with a three. I'm not going to try and convince you. Just no, to prove sure. Point personally, um, it's, it's uh, it, it was different. Like I, I mm-hmm. didn't. Yeah, I typically like bourbon barrels. They they're typically a little strong on the front. They've got more flavor to them because of the added aging process. Not too strong on the front. Yeah, it's a little bit light, and and honestly, it's probably a little more sweet than I would like on the back end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, that could be the orange cream Oreo. I don't know. No, I'm I think not, you're not right. A fucking scientist. I, 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 I think you're right. I don't think yeah. it's a palate thing. So, anyways, um, while I drink this, and again, despite my rating, thank you so much, Adam, for making the beer available to us and Role Playing Exchange in general. I'm sure you have a Twitter account, and you should go follow them <laughs> on that Twitter account and do other things that they would want they you to do. They did a run of Caleb's uh, No Soul Left Behind. Yes, yeah. fucking a. Thank you. Yeah. Even better. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Caleb, what are we talking about? Uh, we're going to talk about and drunk enough today. Uh, something that, again, producer Ross proposed. Uh, it's a concern I have. So uh, you know, in in the I'm haunted by it. Yeah, yeah. In the history of drunk enough, that seems to be where we're at. Where it's like part confessional, part interrogation. Right. Um, how do you eat a balanced media diet? Yes. God, this is fucking. What do we mean me. by that? How how do we do it? Let me tell you what what I think I mean by it. When you when well, actually producer Ross popped the question over here on this one, um, he, it, it immediately resonated with me for a number of reasons. So I like consuming media and obvi. Um, but the trick for me is that a lot of the best media isn't necessarily the most convenient media. So like the best media oftentimes is for me text books, mm-hmm. but hot damn, is it hard for me sometimes to find the time to read a book? And when I'm ready to read a book, I often don't have the energy to read a book or the attention span to read a book. Um, the other half of that then is that I, I recently have gotten into more podcasts. I was telling you fine gentlemen only earlier that I really am trying to listen to more podcasts and I've recently started serial, which I've listened to none of because I can't listen to podcasts when I'm doing anything because I easily distracted. It's the same way that when I'm working, I have to listen to largely music with no words needs to be backed up by a lifestyle. Yeah, that's right. And I don't, I don't ever spend time in places where I am just sitting by myself such that I could listen to a podcast. And when Brandy and I are sitting, not doing much, we like to like binge watch shows, right? So there's, there's my dedicated space where I can zone out and just focus on a thing. And I don't use it to focus on that thing. So when Ross proposed this, it immediately resonated with me because I want to continue to read more in the gunslinger series which i've really gotten into regularly i want to listen to more serial all of the time and probably other podcasts that really wonderful people do people who support this podcast do i want to listen to more good brews bad views um you know i I want to get into more stuff like that uh i just fucking find it difficult to find the time so yeah i want to interrogate and i want to deal with this and i want to openly admit to people that i am not as nerdy and as well-read as i think i should be Uh, i just want to start off by saying that if you're listening to this podcast you're done. You don't don't worry about it. You got all of it. <laughs> You're doing a great job. We got TVs. Uh, we got movies. You really haven't you figured the out the, the fact that I do this podcast and and perceive it from th- something other than my ears is uh, really a, a detriment and a loss on my part. <laughs> You've. You've got it all figured out. Uh, this is really just an academic conversation oh, to you. Well, uh, only if they also listen to Hot Takes on Ice. Yes. That, that, oh, yeah, that, I mean, you need that only if you're a $6 level backer. Right. Like, yeah, right. if you're you $2 that. level, you're doing pretty good, but right. you could do, you could improve. Yeah. Uh, you could actualize more. But aside from that, for the new listeners, right. you know, what, what are they, what do they need help with? So, um, uh, yeah, I struggle with it. So again, books, I also concur. Right. The highest quality media, but it does take. For me. Yeah, right. For me as well, it does take a more energy to go into that. And in fact, that energy is part of the reward yeah. of the book and, and, and going into it. So my problem in, in my current existence is grading. Oh, yeah. 
Because grading requires taking the energy and the critical acumen that you would apply to reading, which may be rewarded yes. with the work of a skilled author, right. and applying it to everyone, yep. and trying getting at what their intention should have been, right. how you can get those attention more clarified. Like right. There's a lot of deep... Uh, DOK knowledge stuff involved in grading if you're doing other than like you missed the comma which I tr- I strive to do right. I strive to make people better writers and thinkers rather than just more correct writers Absolutely. and thinkers in the prescriptivist model and that's exhausting yeah. so like I'm trying to read Murakami now because I've not read him yeah. and I'm, I'm really getting into him about halfway through Wind Up Bird yeah. and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what does this book mean oh, what man. is he going for and um the problem with that is that I'm doing that after, you know, a full day of teaching, yep. a full day of grading, and exhaustion. Right. Um, but here's the thing. I'm so attached to the idea and concept and the worth of reading. Right. I am so deeply identifying with it. Then I know that though that is a struggle for me, I'm not going to cease that struggle. Yeah. Here's what I worry about. I have ceased that struggle with television almost entirely. Mm-hmm. And I often cease that struggle with movies to the point where I'm ashamed. Yeah. Because when I come home, I don't need to think about something I'm watching too hard. Right. Uh, I'm watching reality. I, I literally am doing it as explicitly because. I don't want to think. I have to exert no critical energy on it. Yep. Which is my Breaking Bad problem. I still haven't finished Breaking Bad because I acknowledge it is a wonderful decasibus tragedy. It is a you know night journey into hell that I've seen on seasons one and two and part of three. And the energy I have for that after a full day of teaching is non-existent. Yep. Like, I don't have the energy to teach Macbeth all day and then go home and watch modern Macbeth. Like, I can't, I, can't, I just, I can't do it. I don't have that much energy. Right. And, and I understand that, like, there is a world where I do, and I'm a better person for it. But that's my difficulty in my media diet. Yep. I still ascribe to what I acknowledge as you know the most rewarding media for me, and I still read. But like when I'm watching stuff, uh, like I have a Filmstruck membership, a subscription, uh, which is entirely stuff you can't get on Netflix, can't get on streaming. Typically, it's like Bergman films, it's right. Kurosawa. They have the Yakuza papers on there. I've got this enormous watch list on there that I don't have because yep. the energy I have for like some really advanced foreign film is dead by the end of the day. Yep, and um, it's hard to get motivated to do it on the weekend. When I could just watch like a Bob's Burgers episode for yeah. the eighth time, Thirty Rock for the fiftieth. I'm struggling time. through getting through Black Mirror, right? Uh, like just because I'm like, man, I don't want to be depressed about modernity right now. Yeah. Like I just want to go to bed and like get ready for work tomorrow. The energy. So that, I think that's the struggle that I'm facing, and I wonder if it's not the struggle most people are facing. The like ener- energy versus consumption. The energy bit's really important, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to brush it aside because it's very much. I would say it's the bulk. Meh. I would say it's 50-50 energy for me, 50-50 for this other thing. And I've touched on it a little bit, but it really is an, an, an attention thing. So uh, I'm, I'm a hard introvert. Uh, and, you know, one of the kind of like classic issues that introverts have is that external stimulus make it difficult to focus. Uh, if, if Brandy is sitting and watching television, I cannot sit and read a book because I can't not listen to the television. Can't do it. Uh, it, it, for the same reason that when I am working and I have headphones in, it is either ratatat because there are no words, or pop music that I've heard a million times because I can just tune it out and I'm yeah. just getting the beat. But I would not listen to a new album while I was working. And here's the argument: if you think you can multitask that well, like science says, you can't. Right. Like, yeah, you can't. Like, you can accept multitasking that poorly. Right. 
and, and I embrace yeah. that. I embrace that I have none of none of that, whatever that is, in me. Yeah. So it's not just the energy thing, and the energy thing is real. I mean, especially you know, if I've had days where you know I've I've been in meetings about three or four different projects that we're working on at work, and I've had to switch and think about different settings and different issues that we're addressing, and use critical thinking for X, Y, and Z. You know, coming home and making dinner. Uh, yeah, the idea that I would sit and do some heavy lifting some more just doesn't seem great to me, even though I really want to do some of that heavy lifting. I really and truly do. But if I don't want to do it, Brandy definitely doesn't want to do it. You know, she wants to sit and watch some crap TV because it's her way of unwinding, and I'm usually with that. But if she's watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, I cannot listen to those women screaming at each other about whose shoes are better looking. And try to read something because the the sheer distraction, the inability to tune that stuff out makes it impossible for me to focus on the text in front of me. So it's both an energy and an attention thing, and it's such a bummer. And there's a part of me that really wishes that, like, as a household, we could block, like, an hour every night or a couple of hours a week where we were both just going to sit and just read, you know, or have silence and do something – where we could both do things that didn't require other focus. Sarah and I have literally started doing that. We've tried, and, and, and we'll maintain it for a few days. But, you know, you're always, like, one rough day away from that thing not being a good thing anymore. And she is far more good at it than I am. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm really bad at it. I mean, yeah. you know, with the best intentions, I'll get up in the morning and be like, when I get home today, I'm going to finish that book. And the reality is by the time I get home today at 5 and deal with the dog and make dinner or eat dinner and talk with Brandy about our days... I want to I I want to sit and watch The Bachelor in Paradise um, because it's entertaining and I don't have to do a fucking thing to think about it and I'm going to fall asleep by the end anyways you know what the, I mean the tragedy yeah. is when it becomes a chore when you remember when it was like so edifying right and something you salivated for yes absolutely and it wasn't a chore right like that's that's the problem of it so like um, when I say diet in this like. It's a metaphor, but it's also it's not because like my failure in diets yeah. and my failure in working out yeah. feels almost exactly the same Absolutely. as my failure when I there's guilt yeah and like and that's to say I'm just not to say I never work out it's not to say I never eat healthy right it's to say I objectively acknowledge I don't do it enough yep and um that that failure feels exactly the same. Oh, like, yeah. It doesn't feel metaphorical. It feels no. exact. Like, like I'm bummed about yeah, these things. Yeah, yeah. Producer Ross. Well, you know, uh, I, I I face those uh, same problems too in terms of like energy versus like focus. But the the thing that really, uh, aside from that, really sort of bothers me or like keeps me up, uh, or you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about is what do I prioritize? Like I have this yes. X limited budget, and like for me, my biggest thing is like, should I read these? critically acclaimed novels that are part of the canon new novels yep. versus like very important nonfiction. I feel yes. like a lot of people don't read enough nonfiction books that are like important and edify you about the world yep. and things like that. And, uh, that's my eternal condition. It's like, I have X time to read. What do I read? Yep. I mean, not just the canon, but all these new books that are coming out every mm, year. Yeah, and let me I add mean, a layer on that. This priority yeah. thing is, is is true. Now that you've said it, it totally especially totally the fiction versus nonfiction. It's my yeah. eternal thing. Where I get stuck is like, should I sit down and read? Like you've given me this beautiful copy of Black Science, like you know this compendium of Black Science or whatever oh, yeah. that I'm super excited about. But it's like, should I sit down and read Black Science, right? Or 
should I read this book I bought months ago because I knew it was going to make me better at my job, right? This nonfiction oh, yeah, text yeah, on yeah. like leadership or something, right? Not, yeah. not to you know reference the trash cannon again. And then, so I start reading the nonfiction. Or talk about multiverse hopping. Right. I start reading the fiction <laughs> and I'm like, motherfucker, if I've got time to do this, I've got time to get better at so-and-so or learn more about this actual thing. Yeah. yeah. And then sometimes, honestly, that guilt, that inability to resolve those two things just leads to paralysis and I go play a video game. Yeah. <laughs> because I no, can't, yeah, exactly, I cannot exactly. resolve which one of those things I should do and because I can't answer the should question i just say well then I and all of either. us know and all of us know this thing further agitated by teaching because like yes well, i could be doing something to help my children that's right, right. Yeah, yeah yeah like i could be helping people other than myself I could or i could be enjoying thing. myself like you have to make this objective decision to be like i will be worse teacher a long long enough time frame if i don't do this for myself yep you gotta play this like fourth dimensional fucking chess you with are. your like future motivation and like even that is requiring mental energy that you should be using reading a book or reading a paper yeah like so it, it, it's yeah eventually you opt out and go play destiny right total or destiny too destiny too as of today Day. Luckily, we can quit a podcast right. and like free up that amount of <laughs> right. time. Well, because that's the other bit too, right? Like we're not we're not talking yeah. about you know go to work and then come home and either spend time or don't. Right? It's I went to work and then I went to work. Right? Exactly. Right? That's what I'm saying. Right? So like yeah, go to work and then you know we record at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Right? And right, we're trying to get party foul off the ground, which yeah. requires a lot of time. Last week I had to do shipping stuff for a red market, so I went to work, went to work, and then went to work. Right? Exactly. You know? <laughs> you know? I do some side jobs. Right? So yeah. So it's not it's not just work eight hours and then you've got the other you know 16 hours where you could be asleep or awake to deal with i mean and i know this is not unique to us this is not us saying oh woe is me right like i'm guessing this plagues many if not all of the people who participate in this whole thing with us so while the name of the segment loosely was for us how to eat a balanced media diet i this is actually kind of more like self-help self-serving i want to know how other people do this i think i think my how-to is like and i'll acknowledge here's the thing that i think we're being too hard on ourselves are i think we're better than a lot of folks in terms yeah, of like maybe. In, a, in a good space. Right. I'm not saying we're like superior or elite or anything, but like I think there are people who are worse at this than we are. Sure. Just like I think there are people who are in more shape than I am. Yes. And, and you know, eat better diets than I do. A few. Like because they are objectively true. Like right. it is objectively true that I'm better than some, worse than others. Right. Um, when I exceed at this, like at this point in my life, considering my occupation. Right. Uh, and I think it really depends on do you have an occupation that's requiring mental work from you at home? Right. Or do you have a second occupation? Yeah. Or a third. And I think parenting falls into that yeah. second occupation, <laughs> yeah. work at home yeah. kind of thing, too. Um, but if you are in a situation where your mental energy is being consumed on both ends, yeah. I think it has to be literal diet stuff. Like mm-hmm. I don't feel like cooking right now, but I can't do a pizza because I've agreed to this. Right. Like I don't feel like watching something complex right now. Yeah. But I need to do this because I'm better than Real Housewives on a second watch. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not better than Real Housewives on a first watch, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give it a round. Right. Two. Some of these leisure things need to not be treated as leisure things sometimes if they yeah. really are that important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the trick. Uh and, and that's and that's difficult. Right. Like, yeah. Um and that's the thing with working out. Like if you do it long enough and you get past that six months and you get on the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. It doesn't feel like chores anymore. Yeah. It feels like release. And so what I keep telling myself, and I'm not there yet, and I'm not sure it's possible, right. but like I don't want to leave this hopeless, yeah. <laughs> is that if I can get to a point where I am consistently reading high-level stuff and right. watching high-level things um, beyond even when I'm tired, even when I'm exhausted, right. it'll get to a point where that's just my taste. Yeah. And that's just what I look forward to. And I'm not watching this, you know, advanced, you know, weird criterion foreign film as a chore. Yep. 
Um, because I don't feel like it's a chore when I have the energy to do it. Right. I'm doing it, and I'm looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely. And that's when I will make time to do it. Right. Like I make time for Destiny 2. Right. Or uh, the podcast. Bob's Burgers for 18th right. Times. Yeah. Or like that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. I- I'm genuinely interested in... If you're talking the- about a diet, talk, treat it like a diet. Right. I'm genuinely interested in the comment section on Patreon or Facebook or Twitter, any of the ways that you can interact with us. I'm genuinely interested for those of you who are making it work better than we are, and I'm sure yeah, a lot and of you we're are. Kind of, and like niche-wise, we're kind of in the same boat right. here. Yeah. Like, we probably need some disparate opinions on this. Absolutely. So let us know in the comments. I would love to know, um, you know how, how other people manage this stuff because I really would like to find a workable solution for myself, and I found some that were okay – but I'm also like really bad at all or nothing solutions. So I'm either all in on a thing or if I break it, I'm all out on a thing. So I'd like to know like what other people do if they reserve an hour a week and that's enough and how they do that. I'm genuinely curious in what other people are doing to, to eat a balanced media diet, which I think is the perfect metaphor yeah. for this whole thing. Hey, if you've been listening this whole time, that's super duper awesome. This is one of those two free full six beer episodes that we now get because so many people on Patreon were so super awesome to us. And we may be back if Destiny, you know, the servers go down or place. <laughs> station networks out yeah there, there's a chance we could that, be back in future episodes that will we'll come back after this but but the reality it's is like three episodes worth of beer you guys better goddamn finish right. it yeah, i well, want yeah, my look, refrigerator you know, back blame bungee is yeah, how i feel about this exactly right um it's out you, of our control if you've been oh, listening this whole time or you've listened to any of our episodes in the past uh any amount of time you've given us time energy resources you've given us we appreciate more than we could probably ever tell you thanks so much for everything that you do it's the only reason we do any of this in the first place um because people like you support us in one way or another um if you aren't following us on twitter do it at the mix six we're also on facebook facebook.com slash the mix six we've got a website www.themixedsix.com and you can find us on patreon if you haven't yet we appreciate any support that you can give or would like to give patreon.com slash the mixed six or maybe the mix six podcast i don't know just search for the mix six on patreon <laughs> i think we're the only one mm-hmm. at this point um, thanks so much for everything that you do. We hope you enjoyed this one and many more that we may or may not produce for you, depending on how good Destiny 2 is or isn't. Once again, thanks for listening. I've been Spencer. I'm Caleb. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>